It's August 2022, and this is Right on Prime. I'm Heidi James, and I'm joined by Vanessa Cardi. Hi, Heidi. How are you doing? I am, well, honestly, Vanessa, it's really hot and muggy here, so I'm kind of cranky. But other than that, I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> oh, well, it is August, though, and that means it's your birthday month. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. That did brighten my day. I'll make it through the very close weather and uh, celebrate that fact, I guess. Well, if you're another year older, that means you're also wiser, of course. And so you must have some new pearls of wisdom to share with us. Yeah, if only that were the case. But uh, my resident and I did spend some time reviewing something interesting recently that I thought would be good to share. And the topic was breast cancer risk factors. And there's one aspect in particular that would be worthwhile discussing. Before you get into the specifics, can you cast the net a wee bit wider and remind us of all of those breast cancer risk factors or a reasonable sample, at least, if the list is crazy long? When we think of breast cancer, like when we think of risk for many things, we think about the risks we can't do anything about and then the risks that we can modify. So the ones that we can't change would be like our age, our biological sex, if there's a family history of breast cancer or other cancers. Genetic mutations like BRCA and things like when you experience menarche and when you go through menopause. And then there's modifiable ones like diet and weight and exercise, exposure to estrogens through birth control and menopausal hormone therapy, you know, choosing to have babies later in life rather than earlier. Those are some of the modifiable ones. Okay, so that's a lot of different risk factors. Which one stood out in particular? Well, it's one I didn't mention, and that is alcohol consumption. Oh, right. I always forget about that one. Yeah, me too. Me too. And, and frankly, it's a shame that we do because more and more research is coming out showing the carcinogenic effects of alcohol. It's really where most of the research is right now. But when I'm chatting with my patients about alcohol consumption, it's usually more so related to their mental health or addiction. Maybe we're talking about some GI stuff like liver health or GERD or even CV-related stuff like hypertension and rate management and AFib. And we don't always sort of get into that cancer-causing risk of alcohol. There are so many different cancers that it's implicated in liver cancer, other GI ones like esophageal cancer. Yeah, and I recently read that one drink per day has similar carcinogenic effects as 10 cigarettes a week. That really surprised me. Yeah, and with regards to breast cancer risk, I mean, this is something that's on everybody's minds. I mean, breast cancer awareness and the need for screening is uh, very much like ensconced in Western medicine and Western society right now. So we talk to women about this a lot at Well Women exams and when we talk about screening. So we're perfectly placed and perfectly primed to talk to them about alcohol consumption. So have you looked into any of the research on this to just have an understanding of the impact of uh, alcohol consumption on breast cancer rates? Yeah, there's been a fair bit, but I'm going to focus on an article in the journal Alcohol Research Current Reviews, and the title is Alcohol's Effects on Breast Cancer in Women. And this showed that uh, thus far, the hundreds of thousands of women have been studied, so large sample sizes in all the studies so far. And these studies show that drinking even less than 10 to 15 grams per day increases your risk. And how much is 10 to 15 grams of alcohol? If you had to translate that into like summertime Moscow mules on the deck, please. I need to understand what this means in real life. One standard drink contains about 14 grams of alcohol. And what's a standard drink? Well, that's like a regular size beer, five ounces of wine, a shot of spirits. So drinking even less than one drink per day is associated with increased risk. So that's less than seven drinks per week. 
Well, there goes my summertime Moscow mule on the deck. Thank you very much. <laughs> this party sounds like a real drag. Yeah, sorry to be the party pooper, but uh, it's interesting. Those numbers, when I read them, I'm like, oh, that doesn't quite jive with safe drinking guidelines. But then I looked up the most recent safe drinking guidelines by the CDC, and they say drinking for women is safest when they drink less than one drink per day. So they're kind of on board with this. But Canada's a little bit behind, and they say less than one to two drinks per day or 10 drinks per week. Okay, so you mentioned that there were hundreds of thousands of patients in these studies. But what is the strength of this research? Were these robust studies, or were they a little bit weak and a lot of sort of extrapolation going on? Well, I would like to say that there was tons and tons of randomized control trials. They're not. They're not. It's, uh, it's mostly prospective studies. But I think the evidence is good enough to change practice. The World Cancer Research Fund and the American Institute for Cancer Research did a meta-analysis in the past, and they updated it in 2018. And here's where they looked at these 50 prospective studies. Most of them were in postmenopausal women, but there was a fair number in premenopausal women. And most of these studies were done in North America and Europe, so maybe hard to generalize, but it appears there is uh, the same signal occurring in other parts of the world, too. Based on what I've read, I, I, I think this is real, and I think we need to look at changing how we chat with women about their alcohol consumption. Okay, so I need some more details here, though. So does this risk of breast cancer increase with the amount of alcohol that's consumed? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I'm quoting directly from a study by Choi and colleagues, and they found statistically significant increases in risk of 4%, 9%, and 13% for individuals who drink less than 0.5 drinks per day, less than or equal to one drink per day, and one to two drinks per day. So we are seeing that increase. But one thing I do want to point out is we're not talking about an absolute risk increase. We're not saying if you have less than one drink per day, you're going to have a 9% chance of getting breast cancer. This is a relative risk increase. So just bear this in mind. The numbers sound scary, but they're not as bad as they might sound. I would guess that if you're drinking even more than that, then that risk accumulates and that is therefore bad. Yeah, yeah, it does. And it looks like uh, the risk is higher for postmenopausal women. Their risk increases by about 9% for each additional 10 grams, whereas uh, it's about 4 to 5% for premenopausal women. And did they find that any one particular type of drink was worse than another, like comparing beer to spirits or wine? Some studies showed that maybe beer was worse for premenopausal and wine for postmenopausal women, but not a strong enough data set there to draw a conclusion. So they all seem to be potentially problematic. Okay, so what about the patients who perhaps don't drink, you know, on a daily basis, but they save up their drink quota for the week and have them on a Saturday night? Does that make a difference? Well, according to the Nurses Health study, it might, but not a favorable one. Uh, the study showed that drinking more than six drinks per day was associated with an increased risk, even when accounting for baseline drinking. So binge drinking is not going to help you avoid this risk. All righty. So is there anything else that we need to know here before we uh, take away all the uh, summer fun drinks and toss them down the drain? <laughs> why, God, why? Well, you know what's interesting to me is, like, I'm kind of wondering why this wasn't at the front of my mind when I chat with women about their breast cancer risk. And part of the reason is, is that alcohol consumption is not included in our most commonly used breast cancer risk calculators. You know, those are the ones we use to figure out who needs like more intensive screening than just routine mammogram. So two of them, the Gale model and the IBIS model, which are very commonly used, don't include alcohol at all. 
There's a few more detailed ones that do, but this is just something to bear in mind when you're talking about risk with your patients, especially the higher risk ones that alcohol is not factored into our commonly used risk calculators. Okay, so let me see if I can sum this up. Pretty much any alcohol take can increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. And the evidence that's out there is more than half decent, so we shouldn't just, you know, ignore it. And we should definitely, I think, most importantly, we should definitely be discussing this with our patients. Yep, yep, you're right. And if this has not been enough of a downer for you, I invite you to join me another time when I dispel the myth that moderate alcohol consumption is cardioprotective. you got to wait for that one. The bad news keeps on coming! Oh. All right, so you're just full of chipper good news. This is awesome. How about we... Uh, <laughs> put that one to bed and uh, we'll ponder that and remember to talk to our female patients about the risk of alcohol. But in the meantime, what's going on with the rest of the show? Well, on the rest of the show, Hobie joins me to talk about patient handover and we review best practices on how that should be done. And then on the generalist, Jake and Adrian chat about an approach to a patient with the dreaded upper GI bleed. Really good stuff there. And then in the office, we're joined by Justin Bailey, who is a full-spectrum family doctor out of Idaho who gives us the lowdown on benign prostatic hyperplasia. On our urgent care piece, Mel is joined by Britt Guest, and they talk about the care of minor burns in the urgent care department. And on rural medicine, I was joined by Dr. Aisha Khatib to discuss a delivery that she was recently involved with. And it didn't take place on the ground. That's the only hint I'm going to give. So let's jump right into the show now so I can swear at you for ruining my summertime Moscow mules on the deck. Okay, I'll let you tear a strip off me, and then if we're still talking to each other, I'll meet you on the other side for the summary. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hey, Hobie. How you doing? Good. How are you, Heidi? I am doing super. I'm doing super. So uh, what are we talking about this month? So you told me that we're talking about patient handover. And you know what handover is, of course. It's that time frame when we transfer care from one physician or provider to another one. I think this is a great topic. We're all human and we don't look after patients 24-7. Most of us need to sleep, at least a little bit. <laughs> and so you know, I, I think certainly, obviously, this applies more to the inpatient setting than the outpatient setting. But there is some literature here to review, so we're going to focus on that. And, you know, I will mention, I think this is a very important part of patient care. Like, to do it well, to ensure seamless and safe transitions in care, to make sure that nothing gets missed, that there is no duplication of investigation, and collegiality, right? Making sure that when you sign out a patient, it doesn't leave your colleague hanging, right? You know, when it's not done well, patients suffer. Care suffers. Care gets often elongated, things get missed or duplicated, and it just makes everyone's life more difficult. Yeah, and there's nothing worse than being up in the middle of the night with the patient that no one remembered to tell you about. And you're like, That's if right. only they told me about this, I could have prevented this being up in the middle of the night. That's right. Yeah. Different handover formats. Well, first, Toby, why don't you tell me what inpatient handover looks like in an academic center, specifically in semi-scenic Loma Linda, <laughs> California? I would say in general, it depends on the service and it depends on the type of service. All of us kind of believe in both a verbal and a written handoff because we think that makes things a little bit safer. And several of our services have adopted things like IPASS, which is like uh, an acronym to sort of make sure that things don't get missed. But I would say in general, both a written and verbal handoff is sort of 
what we tried to strive for, along with a kind of algorithm or rubric to make sure that all the important things get handed over on every single patient. Wow. You know, this is exactly what I would expect of an academic hospital. <laughs> well, we try to make sure that our residents get all the exposure to different types of handoffs or sign-out procedures. Because we understand that if you work in a different setting, if you go to a different hospital, it may look very different. But having exposure to different types kind of gives you a sense of what's out there. Yeah, absolutely. I work at a community hospital and we do that verbal and written transfer. We do that when we're handing over for the weekend. But for a nighttime handover, there's always a different person on at nighttime. We only call if there's somebody we're worried about. We don't give a, like an update every night about the people they'll be looking after in the wee hours of the night, just if there's someone we're concerned about. Yeah, and I would say that's not uncommon for a community hospital, right? Because in a community hospital, you have less people who are available to be on call. There's a lot of times nobody in the hospital in some community hospitals. It's just, you know, the emergency department that's open and some nurses on the floor. And so that's where I think sign-out and handoff is tricky because it, a lot of it depends on the local resources and what's available at night, right, in the hospital. Communication technology. So I was reading around this topic and I found an article titled WhatsApp Handover, right? <laughs> which was shocking to me because I guess as a person who grew up without social media, the idea of even using a social media platform or some kind of technology platform like WhatsApp to do a handover seems crazy to me. But have you ever used like a secure messaging app like WhatsApp? No, I can't imagine sharing patient information on WhatsApp, but... Our hospital has licensed a secure app that we can use for communication. It's really replaced the pager from the days of yours. Yes. So yes. this is where you can just send a short text to let them know about something. But even with this app, we still do prefer person-to-person -person communication because there's only so much that can be said in a text. Yeah, and I, and I think the thing that kind of shocked me here is that when we talk about HIPAA and patient confidentiality and privacy, you know, not every platform is secure. Yeah. And often, you know, institutions or clinics have to pay to get additional levels of security or an encryption to make it safe for patient information to flow back and forth. So I don't know the details on the WhatsApp issue, but for us, you know, at our institution, we have been able to use or not use certain sort of platforms to communicate based on what level of encryption we have and what agreements we have regarding kind of things like HIPAA. So that's where, you know, I think that's very important to sort of think about. Yeah. The other thing I would say is our EMR has a chatting function that is secure. So actually, what we end up doing a lot is chatting via our EMR, which allows for that to be done in kind of a HIPAA-compliant format. All our outpatient clinics are connected to the same EMR, so you could actually chat an outpatient doctor at the same time if you need to. You can chat the nurses who are on it. So it's actually quite useful, um, and you can kind of think of it almost like a group text or a chat where you can ask a question and you can get a response back if they're on the EMR at the same time. The evidence... Okay, well, let's look at the literature, Hobie. And there's been a little bit published about best practices in handover. Yeah. And the BMJ did a nice review of safe handover in their Practice Essential series back in 2017. And there's a couple things there that I wanted to highlight. And they reminded us that there are a couple of things that make for a good handover. That mm -hmm. it's timely, it's accurate, it's complete, it's unambiguous, and understood by the recipient. And that's really important because when somebody hands something over to you, you need to actually understand what they've been telling you. Yeah. And I would say, uh, you know, there are some structured handovers like SBAR or even IPASS, which we mentioned earlier, 
And I would say our nursing colleagues are a lot better about this when they call us about a patient. And I think even some of the acronyms like SBAR, which stands for Situation, Background, Assessment, and Recommendation, come out of other fields like the military, where they often have people of different levels, different responsibilities trying to cross-communicate with each other. And so we often tell our residents like, SBAR is great because you don't have to just use it in the hospital. You can use it in your real life. So uh, the funny, you know, we always say like the situation is two o'clock in the afternoon, the background, I didn't eat lunch, the assessment, I'm hungry, recommendation, let's go eat lunch, right? So like, (laughs) it sounds really silly, but in a very short amount of time, you know, I've tried to communicate a lot of information to somebody. And so we try to say it sometimes can feel a little clunky at first, but once it kind of gets ingrained in your head, it really is a great way of sort of structuring information. So what does IPASS stand for, Hobie? The I stands for illness severity. The P stands for patient summary. A for action list. S for situational awareness and contingency planning. Last S is for synthesis by receiver. So again, just a different model, but the idea here is to try to bundle the information in a way that helps make for a safe handoff. As we're talking here, Hobie, I'm reminded that the literature actually looked at these tools to see if one was superior to the other or if any one was particularly good. And there was a meta-analysis in 2021 that really didn't find any evidence supporting any particular tool or structure. So it's not like, oh, if you do the SBAR, it's going to be vastly superior to having an unstructured one. So kind of leaves us with what do we do? You know, how should we approach handover? And I'll just share how we do it. Inpatient handover. What we do takes a fair bit of time because we're incredibly detailed with it. First, in our notes and in our verbal, we do a quick synopsis of the history presenting illness and summarize the care to date. And then we do a problem and plan list. So it can be like, you know, Mr. Jones is a 79-year-old man and admitted with a CBA. He's seen neurology, had these investigations, and here's the current issues and plans. So that is where we let our colleagues know where we're heading with each issue. So they're less likely to duplicate tests that we might have already done. This is where we can also include important treatment restrictions, too, like if there's uh, religious considerations, like a Jehovah's Witness patient who can't receive blood products. We talk about code status. We bring our colleagues up to debate about complex social situations. And we also talk about stuff like NPO status. And I don't know about you, but one thing I love about handover is that it really forces me to reflect and review on the care I've given the patient that week. And I often identify gaps and opportunities that I might have missed and things that I can pass along to the next doc to make sure they do it. It's like nothing makes me tidy up my own work like showing it to somebody else. <laughs> I love this list and I want to give you kudos for being so comprehensive. Uh, I mean, I would say this is like awesome in terms of a handoff. Part of what troubles me a little bit is like it seems very operator dependent. So like your handout might be awesome. But my handoff to you might be, this is a Mr. Smith. He's doing pretty good. Don't worry. <laughs> right? And like, that might be it. Right? And you might say, well, can I get a little bit more? And he's like, oh, uh, yeah, he's doing real good. He's doing real good. Don't worry. <laughs> trust me. Hey, trust me. Does the literature say anything about kind of structured versus unstructured handovers? Is it okay to kind of just wing it and give the high points? Or do you need to really be as detailed and kind of talk about all the stuff that you just mentioned in terms of a handoff? So they've looked into this a little bit, and 
mean, it's tricky to generalize from one study to the entirety of medicine, but there was a trial published in PLOS One that looked at patient handoff on the internal medicine wards. It was a cluster randomized control trial, and it compared non-structured to a very formalized process for overnight handout. And it looked at the impact at several endpoints, but I'm going to quote directly from the study here because it was quite notable. It said that formalized handoff processes can result in increased confidence among medical providers and a perceived decrease of near-miss events, but there's actually no demonstration of improvement in patient outcomes. So uh, like a structure one might make us feel better, but it doesn't appear to impact patient outcomes. Yeah. And I, I would say the one caveat I'd make to that, it's hard to measure hard patient outcomes in something like this because you're, you need to look for misses, right? And so how often do misses happen in the hospital? I mean, I think a lot of near misses happen a lot, but we build so many redundancies into our medical systems to prevent exactly this kind of problem, right? And so if you say, well, Let's look at how many medication errors occurred, or let's look at patient harm effects and what happened. Those ends could be quite small. And so you would need a really big trial to kind of look at whether a handoff process could really have any direct effect. And to that effect, we would say, well, what causes a medication error? Like a billion things, right? Like it's not just just the handoff that's the problem, (laughs) right? And so the idea to be able to do a real root cause analysis and say, well, this is the actual thing that would make a difference here, it's just hard to know. I totally understand that they couldn't demonstrate improvement, but I'd also say I think that's very tricky to try to do. Yeah. You can take away from this, like, patient care doesn't hinge on Mm -hmm. an incredibly formal structured handover, but it never hurts to help your colleagues feel good about the care they're giving and feeling confident looking after patients. That can't be a bad thing. 100%. I often had the sort of perspective that if I'm signing out patients at nighttime to a colleague, what I don't want my colleague to do is like scratch their head and think, what am I supposed to do here, right? What I really want for them to do is get a call, look at the list and say, oh, I know exactly what I need to do to help this patient, right? The less thinking at two o'clock in the morning is generally better. <laughs> Hospital discharge summaries. You know, we're primary care physicians. Most of us work in the outpatient setting or spend significant time in the outpatient setting. What about like hospital discharges and the handover between inpatient and outpatient? What does that look like for you guys? Yeah, so for us, that's usually a dictated discharge summary, like a formal discharge summary, which, uh, to be honest, a lot of us are not dictating at the time of discharge. That sometimes gets put to later. We also update a medication list for the pharmacy, and there's usually a quick phone call update to the patient's primary care provider if it's not us, if it's, a, if it's somebody else whose patient's recovering. I've seen different places use forms that you just quickly fill in and that information gets back to the primary care provider. But the only ones I've seen have been hand-filled and they've been illegible <laughs> and honestly, not that helpful. I'm like, okay, so maybe my patient, maybe they had a cabbage when they were yeah, at the right. hospital. I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> does that say sepsis? <laughs> what does that say? One of the things that actually we piloted, we tried to put in like a little quick Like, here's what the PCP should look at. Mm. And so it's a little note to the primary care doc that says, here are the three, five things that we need you to follow up on. And we've tried to sort of streamline that process a little bit because on the outpatient setting, you know, we often have just minutes, you know, a few minutes to try to flip through a discharge summary and figure out what's going on as opposed to the inpatient setting where you have a little bit more time. And so that's where we try to say, can we make it faster? 
and safer for our outpatient docs to be able to find what they need more quickly. When I mentioned to a colleague that you and I would be chatting about this, they mentioned that they've seen in the literature that some places are moving towards involving patients in handover. So doing handover at the patient's bedside. And what a what a fascinating concept, Hobie. I mean, I, this would be difficult to apply to our setting where, you know, we do rounds in the morning, then go to the office and somebody doesn't take over until at nighttime. But uh, I wonder how this could improve or impact care. It's a fascinating idea. At some point, we were doing uh, structured bedside rounds where we would bring in all the team members, the nurses, the doctors, PT, OT, case management, and we would round in front with the patient. So the patient's there and they would hear us all talking about them because they could comment and say, well, I don't understand or I don't need a wheelchair. I have a wheelchair at home. Mm. You know? And so that was actually very helpful in regards to handoffs. I feel a little nervous about that because I just imagine the patient saying, wait, wait, what? What about this? What about that? Right. And a 30 minute handoff quickly goes to a three hour handoff. But, yeah, you know, I do think it is so true that patients often don't really understand what's happening in the hospital or have very relevant information that could impact their care, but we, we don't often take enough time to ask or listen. Yeah, but this, like many aspects of care, Hobie, is one area that I'm always looking to improve upon because we want to ensure continuity for our patients and ensure that our colleagues are up to speed and hit the ground running when they take over from us. So I've really enjoyed being able to pick your brain about it and, uh, and chat with you here. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the discussion too, because I think so much of medicine now is a team sport, right? You can't, we talked about this in the very beginning, but nobody works 24-7 anymore. And we all share patients and the responsibility for caring for patients safely. And so I think talking about communication and how we get better at it and do it more safely and effectively and efficiently, I think is always a worthwhile discussion. So thanks. Yeah, thanks. We'll catch you next time. Yep, see you next time. cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no i'm the generalist hey adrian good to have you back you ready to head back into the hospital and tackle an important inpatient medicine topic yeah definitely so we're taking on a medical emergency in this one this is one of my favorite topics actually upper gi bleeds yeah, medical emergency indeed. I'm glad it's a favorite topic of yours. I feel less comfortable, so I'm glad we're, we're taking this on because this is one of those things where it's super important to feel comfortable, to make it one of your favorite topics, and to be able to identify this as early as possible so that you can intervene. Yeah, okay. So why don't we start with some anatomy? And so remember, the ligament of trites is the anatomical landmark that separates upper GI bleeds from lower GI bleeds, okay? So this is a band of tissue that is located at the transition from the duodenum to the jejunum. So we're going to stick to the territory proximal to this ligament for this talk. Right. And, you know, fortunately, patients will always present reporting that they're having bleeding proximal to the ligament of trites, right? They just, they'll say that to you. So then you can go from there, right? Right. <laughs> they read the anatomy textbooks. They look at netter before they come in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the typical presentation here is a, a wide spectrum of things. It can include everything from the more obvious ones like vomiting blood, hematemesis, or, you know, the reports of melana, to much more subtle things like epigastric pain in the setting of a positive fecal occult blood test or known iron deficiency anemia. Patients might present with signs of acute anemia. They might have like weakness or dizziness, you know, fatigue or overt signs of hypovolemia and decreased perfusion. Like they, they might just come in overt 
hemorrhagic shock. So they might have tachycardia, hypotension, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and upper GI bleed needs to be on the radar in anyone presenting with all of these symptoms, of course, but also in those with the more vague symptoms and risk factors. And there's quite a lot of risk factors. But before we get into the risk factors, let's talk about the causes and then we'll backtrack a little bit because the risk factors make a lot more sense in the context of causes. By far, the most common cause is peptic ulcer disease, and that includes stomach and duodenal ulcers. So the second most common is probably variceal bleeds, either esophageal or gastric, which are less common. And then after that comes esophagitis and then Mallory Weiss tears. And remember, those are the tears in the esophagus, usually at the lower point where the stomach and esophagus connect, usually caused by vomiting or violent coughing. And then less common etiologies are uh, vascular malformations, including angiodysplasia or ectasia, and then sometimes gastric tumors as well. So now let's go back to the risk factors. They probably seem a little obvious in this, but knowing peptic ulcer disease is a common cause. We're thinking NSAID use, steroid use, alcohol intake, known H. pylori infection. Those are all really important things to look for. Yeah, and not all NSAIDs are created equal, of course. There seems to be a higher risk for GI bleeding with traditional NSAIDs, and that's compared to the, uh, the newer COX-2 selective NSAIDs, like celecoxib. And risk seems to be dose-dependent, so the higher doses and longer duration, that increases the risk. Other risk factors to know about include antiplatelet use, of course, like aspirin and anticoagulant use. And we're looking at you, longtime aspirin users. Speaking of medications, one category that I didn't expect to be a risk factor, SSRIs. SSRIs actually increase your risk for upper GI bleed, and that risk is even higher when combined with NSAID use. I always forget that. It's such a weird thing. Yeah. SSRIs and NSAIDs. But it's a, it's a risk factor, right? Now, for variceal bleeding, the main risk factor is having esophageal or gastric varices in the first place. So this is any patient with portal hypertension, like classically in cirrhosis, but also in less classic cases like patients with portal vein or splenic vein thromboses. And in people with cirrhosis presenting with upper GI bleed, the source is almost always a variceal bleed. People with cirrhosis actually have a 10 to 15% annual risk for having a variceal bleed, which is pretty high. So considering these factors can be helpful in diagnosing the specific etiology, but when it comes to the acute management of an upper GI bleed, none of this knowledge will help stop the bleeding in front of you, right? So let's get to management, Jake. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. I noticed you have a risk factor for NSAIDs as they're bleeding in front of you. It doesn't help. So for acute upper GI bleed, your initial steps, of course, should focus on stabilization. Make sure you have good IV access, either with multiple large bore peripheral IVs or central venous access, and provide resuscitation with crystalloid or colloid fluids. Now, your initial evaluation should include a complete blood count. You look for, you know, look at the hemoglobin and platelet levels. You want to do chemistry. So looking at the BUN, kidney function, liver transaminases, coagulation studies, especially PT and INR. Blood products should be given to maintain a hemoglobin above 7 grams per deciliter. A higher target really should be reserved for those with signs of cardiac ischemia or those in shock or in those with concern for ongoing rapid bleeding. Heidi and I actually hit on uh, different transfusion thresholds previously, and this is a, a practice change for a lot of people. But remember, a more restrictive transfusion threshold, especially in upper GI bleed, people do well with. As a side note, that was a good segment you and Heidi did. I like that one. Thanks. <laughs> so uh, you also want to look for and correct any coagulopathies, particularly in patients who are on anticoagulation. Yeah, great point. Great point. And a lot of the people with variceal bleeds will have coagulopathy from their cirrhosis. 
So guidelines, including guidelines from the American Gastroenterology Association, recommend using a risk stratification tool. And this was a practice update for me. So there's a risk stratification tool called the Glasgow Blatchford score, the GBS. It includes the consideration of BUN, hemoglobin, blood pressure, heart rate, and the presence of melana, syncope, hepatic disease, and heart failure. Yeah, so this Glasgow Blanchford score predicts the need for urgent interventions, including endoscopy, blood transfusions, or surgery. And a GBS score of 0 to 1 indicates a very low-risk patient who can be discharged home without patient follow-up, rather than admission for inpatient management. For those being discharged, consider empiric high-dose PPI until they have time to follow up. For those requiring admission, make them NPO, nothing by mouth, with a goal of stabilization and for upper endoscopy within 24 hours. And the management diverges a little bit here depending on whether you suspect a variceal bleed or a non-variceal upper GI bleed. Right, right. So let's hit on non-variceal bleeds first. Non-variceal bleeds. For non-variceal bleeds, remember that the most common source is peptic ulcer disease. Guidelines recommend starting high-dose continuous PPI therapy until endoscopy. After endoscopy, the recommendation is to continue that continuous IV PPI in those with high-risk stigmata. So high-risk stigmata in this case are ulcers with active bleeding, adherent clot, or non-bleeding visible vessels on that endoscopy. However, big caveat here, the most recent evidence here shows that people do really well with intermittent instead of continuous PPI and with oral PPIs instead of IV PPIs after endoscopy. So switching somebody to intermittent oral PPI would be totally appropriate if they're tolerating PO. Variceal bleeds. And if a variceal bleed is suspected, well, the approach is much different. So variceal bleeds should be considered more serious based on the higher risk for massive blood loss. And the mortality rate is actually, it's really high. It's like 15 to 20%. The same rules for initial resuscitation apply, though this often necessitates ICU care because these patients can get sick really quickly. Yeah, remember the underlying cause here is portal hypertension, so acute treatment is aimed at reducing this. This means using octreotide infusion, uh, which is a somatostatin analog, to cause that splanchnic vasculature dilation and offloading of the variceal volume. Outside the U.S., terlipressin is also available and used in addition to the somatostatin analogs. I can't speak for everywhere in Canada, but we use octreotide here. So patients with cirrhosis and variceal bleeds are at high risk of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, SBP, and so they should be started on antibiotic prophylaxis, and normally this is with IV ceftriaxone uh, on presentation. As with non-variceal bleeds, the mainstay here is endoscopy aimed at fixing the active bleed. Variceal bleeds can be treated endoscopically with different interventions like sclerotherapy or band ligation. And then there's transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunting, or TIPS, and that may have a role in treatment, especially if the bleeding is not controlled with endoscopy, or in people who are having recurrent variceal bleeds. And because of high risk of recurrence in variceal bleeds, patients should be started on non-selective beta blockers to help prevent further bleeds. So propranolol and natalol are both good examples of these, and they can be started about one week after the initial endoscopic diagnosis. There's really solid evidence for this practice that comes from a systematic review that showed for every five patients you treat with a non-selective beta blocker, you'll prevent one variceal bleed, and for every 15, you'll prevent one death. So some really good numbers there. Yeah, that's great. 
So when these patients are finally ready to discharge, you'll have to consider when to restart the anticoagulation and aspirin if they were on it. So for people on aspirin for secondary prevention, aspirin can be restarted even in high-risk peptic ulcer disease by three days after endoscopy if hemostasis was achieved. For anticoagulants, they can be safely restarted one to two weeks after endoscopy, depending on their indication and, and the patient's risk, of course. This is a great opportunity to revisit the need for aspirin or anticoagulation with the patient and update that harm-benefit discussion. All right, well, so that was the quick and dirty on upper GI bleeds. Thanks for buzzing through it with me. Remember, the key first step is resuscitation and stabilization, and then identifying the source of the bleed with endoscopy. All right, sounds good. How should I introduce you, Justin? I don't know. Justin is great. I'm here with Justin Bailey, who is a family physician, and this is the first installment of an ongoing series of all things related to prostate health. Kicking it off is this month's two-parter on BPH. Thanks for joining us on the show, Justin. Thank you for having me, Heidi. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you, and by way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm up in uh, Idaho, Boise, Idaho. I practice uh, full-spectrum family medicine and teach at the Family Medicine Residency of Idaho, where currently I'm the Procedural Institute Director, and have been doing that job for about 11 years now. Prior to that, I ran around with the military and jumped all around the world a few times and loved that. Uh, I'm also an Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the University of Washington. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. And for today's purposes, you are our resident prostate expert. Yeah, and this was a really fun topic. Where I started and where I finished are two different places, and I think any of us who love the role of being a scientist love when we get our minds changed, love when we get a little bit better or we see the picture a little clearer. So hopefully that's going to be the, the place we get to at the end of this talk. We're breaking this topic into two parts to allow us to do an in-depth exploration of the topic. This is the first one, and it's all about the presentation and diagnosis of BPH. And then the second part is going to be on the management. But even before we get into that stuff, could you please clarify for once and for all, what the heck does BPH stand for? This is one of the great controversies in medicine, after all. So great question. And I, for my entire life, have said hypertrophy until I did this talk. <laughs> I was like, and I've been wrong the whole time. So, so benign prostatic... <laughs> Hyperplasia is correct. So hyperplasia is going to be the enlargement of an organ or tissue caused by the increase in reproductive rate of the cells, right? So often cancers grow the same way. Now hypertrophy is just each of those cells gets a little fatter, right? But hyperplasia is that we see an increase in number of cells. So benign prostatic hyperplasia is the correct one. And all of us are all going to just shorten it back to BPH because why would we not do that? We don't have to remember anything new for that. It's always just still BPH. Symptoms. So what does BPH look like clinically? I think we all have a sense of what it does look like, but maybe you can give us a little refresher here. Yeah, so let's start with just what the prostate is, right? And we'll go to simple explanations. So if we think of the prostate as an orange, right? The prostate's an orange. We've got that outer peel, we've got the inner pulp, and we throw a straw through the middle of it. That's our urethra coming through that urine drains out of, okay? So for prostate cancer, it grows on that outside peel of the orange. Benign prostatic hypertrophy grows in the pulp of the orange, right? Like it just gets bigger in the pulp of it. And then that straw that runs down the middle 
Well, that can get pinched off as urine flows through it. And so that's what then goes on to develop our symptoms. If we were going to put a classification, lower urinary tract symptoms is kind of the wording we put around all of our symptoms. Now, let's subdivide that into two different groupings. Storage symptoms. So we have our storage symptoms. So things like our urinary frequency, our urgency, nocturnuria, or our incontinence all fall under those storage symptoms. Voiding symptoms. And then we have our voiding symptoms, right? The things like, I can't get a stream started, that slow urinary stream. When I'm going, I'm trying to put some pressure on that bag to get urine to come out or strain with voiding. The urinary intermittency where it can start and stop or splitting a stream or dribbling. Once we try and stop it, there's just a still a little bit of leak coming out of the hose. So with these symptoms, it's helpful because some of the medications we may choose to treat them are going to focus more on, well, are these storage symptoms or are these more on voiding symptoms? And when someone starts having symptoms, it's kind of a slow crawl to get them. If someone immediately comes in and is like, I can't urinate, that is not BPH, right? Like if they have never had anything before, that's something else you're going to want to look over. Someone who's going to have these symptoms, they're going to kind of grow slowly over the course of five to 10 years. So it's not just one day that it's terrible. It's like, no, yeah, this has been going on for years. I've been waking up two or three times a night for the last 10 years. That's nothing new for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So slow and steadily progressive symptoms would be an indication that somebody has BPH. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And in addition to the symptoms, why else does BPH matter? Because there are complications beyond just like really having to try hard to urinate and getting interrupted sleep. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're 80 years old and you get interrupted sleep, you can sleep all day. Who cares? Right. But there's (laughs) other things that can go wrong as we, we go along this process. So Chronic urinary retention can cause scarring to occur in the bladder, and it can cause your bladder to actually not work, right? So if you have long period of symptoms that they start to not work, well, you can get scarring in there, and then your bladder doesn't work at all. You can also have stones start to form in your bladder. You can get diverticuli that form in your bladder. You know, urine is just one of the world's greatest culture mediums ever created. So if urine just chronically stagnant in there, your risk of UTI just starts going up. We know with our kidney stone patients, that if we are unable to continue to drain the kidney, you can get renal damage in the long term. We do know, and the question comes up, uh, and one of the questions I had as I was walking into this was, if I have long-term BPH, does that increase my risk for cancer? And I think as we go back to that orange analogy we had before, the cancer doesn't grow in the same place as the BPH grows, right? The cancer grows on that outside edge of it, and the BPH is really in the middle, so they're not correlated at all. Certainly, someone with BPH can have cancer, but you don't get an increased risk of cancer from that. Mm, okay, that's, that's reassuring because I know that's a question that a lot of patients have when we start talking about BPH. Yeah, and if we want to get technical, you know, like the inner part of the prostate is the central and the transitional zones. Those are the two areas that the BPH really occurs. Differential diagnosis. All right, so is there a differential diagnosis for BPH or is it kind of straightforward? If there's these symptoms, heck, it's just BPH and nothing else. So things that also can cause that urethra to thin besides BPH, well, if you've got a stricture in there, someone who's had a previous catheterization or trauma to the urethra, certainly that can cause narrowing that will then result in slow urinary flow that may have nothing to do with prostate size. If you've got a bladder infection, right, that can give you those increased symptoms. You've got an early onset cancer or late cancer later in your life and you've never had BPH and that can also grow big enough that that'll eventually cause some compression to be there. If you've got congestive heart failure, right, and you're on diuretics all the time, you may just constantly be urinating. 
if your bladder just doesn't contract right, right? A stroke's probably our biggest player here, but the musculature of the bladder's just not working the way it should. Patients who are just drinking too much, right? Like we certainly have patients that are like, I am now going to lose that 20 pounds. And I read this website that says four gallons of water a day, and they're doing four <laughs> gallons of water a day. You got to get rid of a lot of that, right? And that, that's going to just run through the whole day. Our diabetic patients, right? Just like their stomachs don't work and they get gastroparesis, they can get that same occurrence in their bladder where they've got poor bladder contractility. They're spilling glucose if they've got poorly controlled diabetes. And so then all of a sudden you've got this increased urine source, you've got a, a bladder that just doesn't squeeze, and that can also give it to you outside of those. Those are our big ones that I like thinking about. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a very comprehensive list. Red flags. Is there anything else you would ask about on history? I mean, I think you've touched on the main things, but anything else you would like to know? I love when I go into history. I love standardized screening scores mm. because I don't remember well day to day, right? Like I'm usually pretty good when I'm talking with patients, but I, I forget really quickly what each patient was because we see so many of them. So I, I like standardized screening scores. And there's a lot of different ones that are out there, like the International Prostate Symptom Score. And it allows you to say mild, moderate, severe, as well as you started a medication or you did an intervention. And did their symptoms get better? Did we take our score from a 20 down to a 15 and we've seen a difference? So a lot of these things are on there. And it's going to focus on those urine storage questions, right? Frequency, urgency, nocturnuria. Can you get a stream started or do you have trouble stopping it? Let's get all those other things that, that we want to know from their past medical history. CHF, diabetes. We want to look for our red flags as we're going through this, right? Do you have incontinence? Starting and stopping a stream is different from it happens and I didn't mean it to happen, right? That's mm. a different bucket and shouldn't be just told to be BPH. I tried to stop and I had to, you know, get down to the Starbucks quicker and I dribbled a little bit in my urine. That's a different thing than I didn't know it was happening. If I have a urinary retention, right, that we uh, do a post-void residual or as something like that and we just see these large amounts of bladder, that'd be worrisome. Or blood in the urine, that should clue us off that something else is going on. Also, any trauma, right? We talked about the urethral trauma. If there's blood in that urine, have they ever had a stroke? Cigarette smoking, we want to uh, clearly, like in all patients, we're going to look for that, but it certainly increases the risk for bladder cancer. And as well as anticholinergic or sepathomimetic agents that may affect how our bladder contractility is going. And then what symptoms are they getting after their diuretic use? Sometimes voiding diaries can be helpful in clarifying what some of this is. And again, going through each one of those can be a little bit boggy. A, a prostate screening score often gets all those that you can set with them. They can get it all down on paper. Then you can come in and focus on those things that are, are the challenging parts of their symptoms. Physical exams. Now, a big part of diagnosing BPH is doing a physical exam. And I know in my practice lifetime, we've kind of gotten away from doing routine screening DREs to see what a prostate feels like. So can you talk a little bit about what we're going to see on physical exam here? Yeah. And... Uh, I'm going to wander on a tangent again. I apologize. <laughs> so we, a lot of times we'll hear things like, don't use a digital rectal exam to screen for prostate cancer. And so then we walk away with the answer of don't do digital rectal exams ever, ever, ever. And that's not the correct answer, right? Mm. Using a digital rectal exam as a physical exam to say, look for BPH, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, right? Like that's going to help you get a better idea of what the size of the prostate am I doing this to do your screen for prostate cancer that we're doing every year? No, you shouldn't do that. But as a physical exam, great thing to be able to do. And 
very helpful. If someone's got symptoms, you should do a physical exam that's going to help you be better at finding the answer for that. Mm. So for a digital rectal exam, getting there, I think, is uh, half the battle. Uh, I feel like uh, some of us are very comfortable uh, with all parts of the body and others of us aren't, even though we all know we're supposed to be the most comfortable. Some of us aren't. So if I can take two seconds on this, the anus, if we're standing upright, is oval shaped, right? With the oval, the long part of the oval is at 12 and 6. And so our fingers also are oval shaped. And so coming in kind of from the side, either from three or nine is more comfortable for the patient. So a lot of lube is your friend. When you get to the anal sphincter, some people have a very relaxed anal sphincter. Some people have uh, a lot of spasm in it and even can be pathologic for other things that we'll talk about if we ever talk about a GI topic, but we'll just (laughs) talk about this. Mm -hmm. But most muscles (laughs) will relax if we just put some gentle pressure on them. So someone who's having discomfort with the exam, just continue, hold gentle pressure coming in from the side. And usually that muscle will relax and allow uh, your finger to enter. If someone's having a lot of discomfort, don't just get nervous and plug ahead because it'll make it more uncomfortable that that muscle will will tighten down even more and make the the exam more uncomfortable. But most patients, the longest I've ever had to wait is 60 seconds. Most are three to five seconds and you can comfortably slide in. Then once your finger's in, rotate it down to the six o'clock position and you're going to feel over the sides of the prostate. And as, as you remember, we feel that nice, firm, kind of like a, that rubber, super high bouncy ball you had when you were a little kid. Kind of has that firm texture. <laughs> and it, you roll over each side of it. It should be symmetric. The size is about the size of a walnut. And if you never do a prostate exam, you'll never get the sense of, this is bigger than normal. This is smaller than normal. Exactly. Which position should the patient be in to best facilitate the prostate exam? I tend to have my patients lie on their left side when I do the exam. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I know people have them stand up. That can uh, increase the tone of the pelvic floor. And if that's your preference, that's fine. But I feel like I get a better exam. Patients are more relaxed. I'm able to feel more of the prostate. And I'm only going to be able to feel about 30% of the outside edge of the prostate when I do this. That's why it's not a great cancer screening exam. But just feeling that, okay, this feels like the size of a, a small lime versus that walnut size. That's bigger than I expect it to be. That goes along with your symptoms. Now I feel better about this diagnosis of BPH. I've added one more piece to this puzzle as I'm building the story to say BPH is the right answer. Investigations. Clearly, we're going to do a physical exam to see what that prostate feels like. But are there any other investigations we might want to consider? Yeah. So we, in addition to that physical exam, just the digital rectal exam, you want to do an abdominal exam and feel if, like a hugely distended bladder you may note. But for the most part, you're not going to see that. I think lab can be really helpful for us in ruling out other things that could be a problem. So uh, UA, just is there blood in there, right? Is there something else that's going on that could be causing this irritation? Is there glucose that's suggesting they're spilling, there's their diabetes under control? A urine culture may be helpful, right? If someone's having these symptoms of like, ah, this is a new onset urgency frequency, maybe we want to rule out that there's an infection going on in there. A serum creatinine, does that help us to say like, oh, our kidneys are starting to shut down and not be as effective? How about PSA? Should we be ordering that test? So the, the prostate just is exuding PSA at all times, right? And the bigger <laughs> it gets, it's just like leaking out the sides. And so that's why it starts to go up over the years. One thing it can be helpful for is telling you how big the prostate is, right? Because the bigger that prostate gets, the more PSA is going to be there and the more that's going to leak out. So a PSA that is less than 1.5 nanograms per deciliter, the prostate's not going to be bigger than 35 grams. I didn't say this before, normal prostate around 20 to 25 grams. So just starting to get enlarged is 35 grams. So if you're like, I don't trust my exam or I'm not sure, 
you get a PSA less than 1.5, that tells you, hey, your prostate's not necessarily uh, that enlarged yet. Hmm. It also is helpful uh, in a cancer realm, a PSA less than 1.5 is really reassuring that that person's never going to go on to develop cancer in the next 10 to 20 years. So that's a nice number to remember. But if you're like, I don't know, I, I can't feel it. This, the body habitus is just not letting me add an exam and I'm just not sure. Less than 1.5 on a PSA may be helpful to say, nope, my prostate's not that enlarged yet. Routinely recommended? No. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to know. Are there any non-laboratory tests you use to evaluate the patient you suspect has BPH? You can do a post-void residual, having a patient urinate, and then you can do an ultrasound scan to see, are they retaining uh, in there? A lot of us will have uh, ultrasounds that do just post-void residuals in our office. If you don't and you have access to an ultrasound, whether bedside or a point-of-care ultrasound, it's pretty easy to do your own post-void residual. You can just take a shot of the bladder. It's nice because it's black, right? You just measure side to side, top to bottom, rotate your probe 90 degrees and measure side to side again, all in centimeters, times each of those together. So you've got the three numbers together and then times them by 0.52. Wow. So that gives you a post-void residual, which can be done without, you know, paying your $6,000 for your own, for another <laughs> toy in your office. If you already have ultrasound, that could be done. Equally, you can do a straight cath and measure the volume after they're done to get a post-void residual. Normal is less than 50 milliliters. In a greater than 65-year-old patient, less than 100 milliliters is normal. So all those things can be done inside in the office. Do you want to go in and get a, a specific ultrasound or an MRI of this? Probably not right away. That's probably going to be in correlation with further workup uh, if you've got this complex one that you're not able to really control or we're starting to think about surgery. They, those may be added. But as any routine for making the diagnosis, deciding to go into medical treatment, ultrasound or MRI is not part of my practice uh, right now. Okay. How about urodynamics testing? Is there ever a role for that? If someone's getting ready for surgery, they may do urodynamic testing. That's probably worth a comment on what that is. So they'll have them pee into a funnel that measures their flow rate. How quick are they able to get urine out? Does that tell us anything? They'll get leak pressures, right? Put a Foley and fill it up and then see how much pressure it takes for it to leak out. They'll do a PVR, pulse void residual, a pressure flow. They may even check the electricity and see how well the bladder's contracting or even a video urodynamics where they watch the bladder contract as it urinates with a little uh, contrast in there. And those are all, I don't do any of those in my office. I feel like anytime I'm at that stage, I have my urologist in conjunction with me taking care of this patient uh, because I think it's they can really help me do it. This concludes part one of our treatise on benign prostatic hyperplasia. In this portion, Dr. Bailey has reviewed the presentation, the differential diagnosis, and the complete evaluation of the patient with suspected BPH. I invite you to join us later on in the show when we come back for part two, which will cover everything and anything there is to know about management. We'll see you there. All right, let's talk about minor burns. I'm here with Britt Guest. Hello. Uh, she's our guest today. <laughs> I bet you've never heard Never that. heard that one before. <laughs> All right, so we did a C3 on burns, but we really focused on major burns. And I thought that we should do a little segment here on minor burns because it's a little confusing because it changes every five minutes. And no matter what you do, it's wrong. You know? The burn doctor will tell you you did, did it, it wrong. wrong. So we're going to tell you a whole bunch of wrong things, but they are the current wrong things, which will be less wrong 
later on. So let me be very clear about what we are not discussing. We are not discussing things like oral burns and chemical burns and electrical injury and major burns and burns to your junk and all that kind of stuff because mm. they're complicated. We're just doing like, I got a little bit of burn on my arm kind of thing. So the first thing everybody always talks about is the classification because depending on the, how bad the burn is as to where you need to look after them, Dr. Guest, who's a guest of mine, yes. is going to tell us about the debts. Go. All right. So superficial burn. This is a sunburn. This is just into the epidermis. It's painful. It's red. It blanches. Honestly, sunburn. But sunburns are painful and they hurt and I don't like them. I don't like them either, but they're not an emergency. Thank you. All right. So then there's partial thickness burns. Now, partial thickness burns are actually, there's two subtypes. Number one. There's superficial partial thickness. Number two. And there's deep partial thickness. Now, to differentiate between these two, the superficial partial thickness, it blisters. It's painful. It blanches when you push on it. Then there's deep partial thickness. So the way that we differentiate between the superficial and the deep is that the deep is a darker red, a waxy gray, and it kind of looks leathery. And most importantly here, it's painless because you're starting to kill a lot of those nerve fibers and it doesn't really hurt, which makes this a very bad burn. And then the worst burn of all is a full thickness burn. Now, this is deep into the subcutaneous tissue, and you're going to see charred skin, and you might even see an eschar start to form. Yeah, the way I think about this, because this used to be first degree, second degree, third degree, fourth degree. So it's a reimagining of that. So superficial is the sunburn. Superficial partial is that really bad sunburn where you've got blistering, and then everything else after that's bad. Real bad. Okay, another simplified definition of what a minor burn is has been suggested by Medline. So that's a first degree anywhere on the body or a, even a second degree burn, which is less than two to three centimeters. So a tiny second degree burn would also be considered minor. But there's a lot of authorities that would add that um, this has got to be isolated. There's got to be no inhalation. There can't be any suspicion of abuse. Uh, it shouldn't include the face, the hands, the perineum, or the feet. Ow. It's not circumferential. It's not crossing a joint. And they're not at the extremes of age. So, you know, it's got to be young, healthy person with just a little bit of a burn and not much else going on. They're the ones that we're talking about. So let's talk about treatment. And the first thing to think about in treatment is to cool it down. So if you just did it, like you splashed a bit of boiling water on yourself, you should cool it down. But you should avoid freezing. Um, don't sort of grab the ice and shove it into the freezer and do all that stuff because that actually can make things worse. So just run it under the tap or a little bit of wet gauze that's under the cold water is enough. And just remember, in kids, if you put a whole bunch of uh, wet gauze and stuff on them with greater than, say, a 10% surface area burn, in particular, they can become hypothermic over time. Avoid soaking the burns, so don't sort of uh, leave a big wet matted thing on there because it'll get all macerated and nasty. This is just the initial sort of cooling down. And then many burn centers say, in terms of cleaning, they've made it really complicated, now it's simple again. Just mild soap with a bit of water just to wash the crap off there. And you can also do that between outpatient dressings. So what about blisters? Blisters. Blisters are so controversial. So right now, this might change tomorrow, Mel, but right now, if you have a blister and the blister is small, just leave it alone. I know you want to pop it, I know you want to pop that blister. Oh, you love to pop blisters. I know. It's so rewarding, but it's the wrong plan. Leave that blister intact. Now, 
Some will say if you have a big blister and maybe it's on an area where it's going to easily get hit and just slough off anyways, those blisters, those large blisters that are likely to rupture regardless, you can actually debride them. Now, I had always thought if I wanted to, you know, if I had this big blister that I, I did need to pop, just pop it, poke it with a needle and just let the fluid kind of drain out. And now you have this nice skin bandaid. But I'm wrong. Apparently, if you leave that skin bandaid intact, you have a hole in there and lots of little bugs and infections like to crawl into that and it makes an environment that you could easily get infected. So if you do have a large blister that you are going to debride, you want to make sure to cut all that dead skin off to the healthy tissue and then you can dress that with a bacitracin and some gauze. And of course, in the same way, if they come in and they had a big blister that's already busted, Right now, the thinking is take off that uh, skin because it's not actually going to be a very good dressing. We've got better dressings than that. But that's really different than when I was training. It was like, oh, yeah, just suck the fluid out and leave the skin on there. So right. It skin changes every five minutes. Skin Band-Aid. Skin Band-Aid. I love it. <laughs> but Skin Band-Aid is not the right answer, at least for now. All right. So what about wanting to treat this with antibiotics? Because sometimes you just really want to throw some antibiotics on that. Yeah, because you know that some of these are going to get infected and that's why you need to follow up and make sure they're not getting infected. So maybe I can reduce infection by putting goop and stuff on it and giving them antibiotics. Nope, you do not want to give them antibiotics when you see them for the first time. There is no requirement for oral antibiotics or antibiotic creams when you're just taking care of this burn for the first time. Of course, if it comes back and it looks infected, obviously start antibiotics at that time. Again, if you're going to pop that blister, debride it all the way, you don't need to put antibiotic cream on this or start the patient on oral antibiotics unless they come back and it looks infected. What you can do is put some type of uh, bacitracin or aloe vera on there to just keep that skin protected and lubricated. You're going to say, you said uh, bacitracin, but you said no antibiotics. Well, actually, it's not the bacitracin. Here in the U.S., the bacitration emollient, the thing that it's in, is sort of very lubricating. And uh, so a lot of people use that not for the antimicrobial activity, but for sort of that emollient activity. But uh, aloe vera is uh, something that's sort of really trendy right now. A lot of people like it. it. Tastes great, less filling kind of thing. So Mel, what about silver sulfadiazine? SSD, silver sulfadiazine. So for about a million years, this has been the standard outpatient and inpatient burn goop. We used to put this on all of the time when I was a resident and even after residency, but it really sort of freaked me out because every single study that we covered on EMA covering burn dressings and SSD showed that SSD was the worst choice. I mean, years and years of study after study saying even honey and boiled potato skins and everything, <laughs> and literally is a study on boiled potato skins. That's cool. It was the worst. So we don't like it because it doesn't really work. It has silver in it. It can cause staining. And it probably significantly reduces healing. It doesn't make things better. So SSD is out. And I hope it is dead, dead, and dead because there's really no study that shows that it works. And I think also with some of these things, especially if you're going to transfer a patient that is a burn, so not just a mild burn, but somebody you're more concerned about, it's on the genitals, it goes over a joint, it's on the hands. If you're going to transfer that person and you put an SSD on there, once they get to the burn center, they're just going to have to peel that off, wash it off, and it's really painful for the patient. So you, again, really did nothing good for this patient by putting on this cream. Yeah, that's a really important point. If you're transferring to a burn center, don't put anything on there. A sheet and then a blanket on top of the sheet, but nothing on the goop because the goop will have to come off. But should do tetanus. What about steroids? Nope. 
no need for steroids. Don't use topical steroids. They're not indicated for these mild burns. What about pain meds? Yes, we should treat pain, but there's nothing magic here. So just acetaminophen or ibuprofen is usually enough for these superficial burns. Now, these can be big, though. You mean, you see some patients come in with big old sunburns, and that's a lot of pain, and they might need more than that. They actually might need opioids and some other stuff. So just because it's a sunburn doesn't mean it doesn't hurt like, heck, we've all had a bad sunburn. It's bad. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in terms of uh, dressing, what do we do for these people? So most superficial burns really, you know, might not need any dressing. Like you said, put a little uh, aloe vera on there might be enough. Maybe if it's a bit bigger, you can put a little gauze over the top, a little gentle cleaning with soap and water every day. There is an absolute dizzying array of theoretically non-adherent third-party biological and synthetic dressings. I'm not even going to go through the list because it's so huge and there's very few randomized head-to-head trials. And what you use in your emergency department or urgent care or clinic, the one you use is what? The one you have. (laughs) (laughs) So most of the time you don't need anything, but um, if it's a bit bigger and if it's painful and if you think it could deserve something, then there are these non-adherent dressings. And I really don't know which one's best. So maybe I should say a little bit more about this. There's sort of a couple of big groups. There's the hydrocolloids and the classic one is duoderm. There are foams. And then there's these things called hydrogels. And again, Doing a lit review on this is really frustrating because I can't find any good, big, randomized trials that show their best. But I find, as you will find if you do searches on this, a lot of opinion. And it's very regional. And it's like, you should use this one at this time and this one at that time. And this is true in all of medicine. If you find that uh, you're always getting it wrong and there's lots of opinion and uh, people are saying, this is the way you do this thing, and yet it's different from uh, another person, it's because there's not enough data. When we've got a lot of data, there tends to be, you know, people doing about the same thing. But when there's a lot of opinion, it's all over the place and people get really angry. So when there's no data, it's really ugly out there. And that's kind of how this is. One thing that I should state that does come out by a number of experts is as the wound is healing, as the burn is healing, you really don't want to get it burned again, even sunburn. So the use of uh, SPS 50 or more is really suggested so you, you don't develop things like uh, hypopigmentation from secondary burns. So that is another way you can dress the burn is with something like sunscreen. So in terms of disposition, if we are seeing this patient from urgent care, anything more than a minor burn, anything more than that superficial burn, really does need to be evaluated and seen in the emergency department. So send them over to an ED, especially send them over to one with a burn unit, because not all hospitals have burn units. If you are going to transfer this patient, again, don't put any creams, don't put any lotions on there. If anything, just put, like Mel said, a dry sheet over the patient because once again, if they get to that burn center and they get to the ED, the other doctor is just going to have to peel that off and it's going to be very painful for the patient. If it's a mild burn, you can send them home with ibuprofen. We talked about the blister, cutting that off if you need to, leaving most intact. And most will heal in a week or so. Prolonged blistering or healing would suggest more of a serious burn and would need a specialist referral. And obviously, you're going to follow these patients up back with you or with somebody else just to make sure that it is healing and that it isn't infected. Now, I should say another thing about the treatment of burns, because everything we told you would probably be wrong in five minutes. So make sure you (laughs) check the Corpendium chapter. We did that C3 uh, burn review. But also, there's a lot of local practice. So if the person who runs the burn center has a different way that they want to deal with this. And she's like, no, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. 
and that's the person who's the expert in your area, you probably should uh, work with them on that because there is enough room here to do this differently. All right, so minor burns and C3 for major burns. Wear your suntan lotion. Prophylaxis, we didn't talk about that. Don't play with fire and wear stuff when you're outside, otherwise your junk's gonna get all sunburned. And don't breathe in fire. That's also a bad one. What Those about, flaming shots, Mel, I've seen you. What about the fire breathers? That's their <laughs> job. They have to. Welcome to part two of an in-depth conversation with Dr. Justin Bailey on the topic of benign prostatic hyperplasia. In part one, we covered the presentation and the diagnosis of this condition. And here, we're diving into management. Now that we've diagnosed BPH, let's turn our attention to treatment. Because I think it's very important to be able to help patients with these symptoms because of the complications, but also because of the impact on their lives. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you've ever met a guy before. They don't tend to love to come talk to you to start with. Right. They don't tend to like to do a lot of things. And so I think it's nice to have a broad range of, here's the smorgasbord of what we can do for you. (laughs) And first up on that smorgasbord of treatment options is usually lifestyle for most conditions. Can the same be said for BPH? Lifestyle. So lifestyle comes in for a lot of patients that they want to work on that first or lifestyle and maybe a little medicine. And so things with lifestyle, right? Like if you're that four gallons a day person who's just chronically drinking water, give yourself a few hours to get rid of that, right? Like limit your fluid before bedtime, three or four hours before bedtime, really stop drinking anything with a diuretic, uh, like caffeine, alcohol, stop doing that before one before bed and just limit it throughout the day overall. Sometimes spicy foods can be a little irritating for patients. So if they find that that's irritating the bladder and that, you know, they've really hit a, you know, they hit the Thai restaurant and they, they ask for it, you know, on a scale to one to five, they're like five every time, but <laughs> they're up all night. That's probably what's causing your problems. Uh, limit the spicy food or at least give yourself enough time to get rid of it all. Constipation, right? If we're looking at anatomy, the colon lives right next to the bladder. You've got a big distended colon. It's going to always push on your bladder. And so if you're constipated, focusing on helping increasing dietary fiber, you know, if they needed some sort of medication to help them get that. If you're obese, we do know that patients who are obese that are at higher risk for developing PPH and prostate cancer. And it does look like from the cohort studies, I don't have a great randomized study to pull you to to say this, but it does look from cohort studies, even if you are obese and then you reduce your obesity, that that will improve your prostate symptoms. And we think decrease your chances of developing prostate cancer. For patients who have lost sensation, maybe learning and going back to timing their voids every one to two hours, just go and try if they're not feeling that. But that's a good starting place for what we can do lifestyle-wise. Okay, yeah, definitely a good starting point. Now, patients who try that and don't succeed or patients who don't feel able to or not particularly willing to alter their lifestyles, what would you look to next? So you can do surgery at any time, right? And I would say most folks aren't super pumped to do surgery right away. So for the vast majority, uh, medications are where we step to next. Medication. There's several different classes, so it'd be fun to kind of talk through. So we've got our alpha blockers, which are alpha adrenergic receptor blockers, which most of us are familiar with. When we started out in theory, we said these are just going to relax that straw that's going through our orange, right? Like it's going to open that smooth muscle up. It's going to allow the flow to be better. 
And while there's probably some component of that, there's something else going on that we haven't really defined well, but it's not just that that those work for. We've got our 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And so those block testosterone in our prostate, slowing down how fast that's going to grow. We've also, in the past few years, shown that we can use phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors. So what was only for erectile dysfunction now can be used if you've got a patient with erectile dysfunction and uh, BPH symptoms. It works great. It's a great single agent choice. And then for our storage symptoms for that bladder that just won't empty uh, well, muscarinic receptor agonists are our choice. Let's dive into these meds in more detail, and let's start with the alpha blockers. These have come a long way. Like, we started out in kind of late 70s. Phenooxybenzene was our first one that they ever came out on the market. And you've never heard of that drug because we never use it anymore, right? <laughs> it, uh, nope. you, it lasted like an hour or two. You'd have to do multiple dose titrations. It made you ridiculously hypotensive. So it never got off the starting blocks more than just for the most, you know, severe patient. Really research labby stuff. The next one that came along was prazosin. So prazosin equally had a few of these problems, but it just wasn't quite as bad, right? So we'd start and we'd have to give it every few hours and you would have to increase your dose, right? Is it one milligram? Are you five milligrams? Are you 10 milligrams? And we'd have to dose titrate it up. Do you actually get relief of your urine before you get hypotensive? Never really got that far. Then when we got into our terazosin or doxazosin, we started to make some progress forward because these medicines lasted a little longer, right? So instead of multiple times a day, multiple dose titrations, now we could give this one dose a day and we just had to find your dose and then it would work pretty good. It had some of the same problems, the dizziness, the hypotension, nasal congestion. So they never really got rolling uh, that well, but we were starting into it. We were actually trying things that were good large studies that showed the benefit. And when tamsulosin came on the market, it kind of blew the whole thing apart and everybody was on top of it. And tamsulosin did something that was kind of fun. It's a 0.4 milligram dose and it lasted all day. So there was no dose titration. You just took one pill a day. And even though the 0.8 milligram worked better, they were just like, don't tell anybody, right? Like just do 0.4, <laughs> one dose, that's all you need. 0.4 is all you need. <laughs> and so this one was the first one that was very selective for the one alpha subtypes. You've got four or five subtypes of it. So this one was selective and they thought this is the makes all the difference. But as we played those studies out, the selectivity doesn't actually matter that much. Hmm. It's, it's there. Patients still can get a little dizzy with it, but just much less than they were before. The big uh, side effect that came with this one was the abnormal uh, ejaculation. Yeah. And this is a big concern for many patients. And it's been interesting to see our thinking about what's going on change over time here. We summarized and thought that it was a retrograde ejaculation for a while, right? That it was just, it was relaxing all the muscles. And instead of coming out uh, at the end of the urethra, it was going backwards into the bladder. The more they've looked at that, the more it looks like it's an ejaculation. You're just not ejaculating at all. Hmm. And it's about 10% at the 0.4 milligram dose and about 20% at the 0.8 milligram dose. Tamsulosin really still has the lion's share of the market on this but there are newer drugs since this one, right? So it's worth going to the next one, alfuzosin, which was the last one to come out. So it's a non-selective. It's the same as tamsulosin in that it's one dose a day. So 10 milligrams a day. And the benefit of this one is it doesn't have abnormal ejaculation with it. <laughs> it came out, it's a non-selective, one dose, once a day. And, but that one, for whatever reason, I don't think they had as cool of a branding name or maybe they weren't, uh, <laughs> didn't have the sales force going. But you don't see that one used nearly as much. 
And I'd say no. the right place for that one is a great starting point. Or if you've got a patient on Tamsulosin that's got the abnormal ejaculation, this doesn't have that listed as a side effect. You've mentioned some of the more common side effects, like the dizziness and the runny nose and the ejaculatory issues. But are there other side effects we need to think of, too, when we're prescribing alpha blockers? So it's good to think about. So one side effect that's come up is something called floppy iris syndrome. Yes. So this is really uncommon to have happen. But if you're getting uh, a cataract surgery done and all of a sudden your body won't heal right or grab right around that uh, lens that's put in there, that can be a problem. So again, it's uncommon, but if a patient's on an alpha blocker and you're sending them to an uh, ophthalmologist uh, to have their cataracts looked at, they should certainly be aware of it, one, to start with. And two, it looks like they don't usually stop the surgeries from going forward, but a patient should certainly have that in their discussion of risks as they move forward with it. We talked about the ejaculation stuff already. Rhinitis, about 2% of patients will get that. That patient who just comes in is like, my nose is always running. It's probably their alpha blocker, right? That it started Mm. with it. Just consider taking them off of that. I'm thinking of a couple of patients right now. (laughs) That's a probably medication side effect. Right, that's what that is. 5-phosphodiesterase inhibitors. What about the next class of drugs? So I brought up before with the phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors, right, that uh, they can work well for erectile dysfunction and BPH. So Tadalafil was the 5 milligram dose was and is approved uh, for BPH symptoms. So if you've got patients that have both of those together, they do a good job. Several studies show that Tadalafil versus Tamsulosin showed equal efficacy for those lower urinary tract symptoms, which most of us, I don't think that was in my wheelhouse that, mm. that that was something to use. Me neither. I would say that a 2018 Cochrane that pulled 16 randomized controls trials together did show slightly better benefit from the alpha blockers. But again, if I've got 10,000 people in the pot that I'm just showing a slight benefit, if I've got someone who I can maybe do it with one drug, this might be the place to do it. Can I use them in combination? Yes, you can use both of them together and you get better symptom control with the two of them together than you get by just one of them alone. Let's move on to the next class, Justin, and this is the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Tell us about them. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Those have been around for a while as well. And so the way these ones work, and we mentioned it before, they block that conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. And so it prevents that prostate from just getting bigger and bigger. You don't have that testosterone. It doesn't stimulate cells. You don't get a bigger prostate, right? So this is only going to work if your prostate's big to begin with, greater than 35 grams. So we talked about using that PSA if you're unsure about what your exam is or you just want to have an extra confirmation. Less than 1.5, your prostate is smaller than 35 grams. This medicine's probably not going to be that helpful for you in the treatment of them. These tend to work better in combination than by themselves alone it takes a while for this to work, right? Where we're thinking we're getting that smooth muscle relaxation and on those five alpha blockers, we get pretty quick uh, symptom relief. This is a six to 12 month game to see benefit, okay? So I think it's good to warn patients, this is the track we're on, it's gonna take a while. Your goal is to avoid surgery. This is what we're gonna do to help keep us on the track we're at. So two medicines, finasteride, dutasteride, five milligrams on the finasteride, 0.5 on the uh, dutasteride. How about the side effects for this class? This one's probably a foot stomp thing that we need to talk about. So one of the side effects that we don't think of as a common side effect is that it will lower your PSA. So you will get up to a 50% lowering of PSA if you start on this medicine. 
So before you start on this medicine, you may want to have a prostate cancer screening discussion. And even if you're not, they may change your mind. It might be nice to know where you're starting from. And so once you go on the medicine, if you screen for prostate cancer in the future, you need to adjust or your PSA number. So most common is that you add two to the number you get. So if a patient comes out and their PSA is four and they've been on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, you're going to add two to that number to get what your real number is. So they're really a six. And that may change some of your discussions on what's going on with this, what are we doing with this. Equally, if a patient's been on it for long-term, you didn't have a baseline, adding that two to the number is going to be your conversion to get the right number that it's on. But it's really helpful to know. I feel like this was something I had never heard of before Mm -hmm. till I really got into the weeds on this. So I wanted to foot stomp that because I'm assuming that I wasn't the only one that somehow missed it. Yeah, I did not know that as well. So you you are not alone. (laughs) You're not alone. Could you talk a little bit, please, Justin, about the role and the potential benefits of adding one class of medication to another class of meds for BPH? Combination therapy. Absolutely. So the studies of them combined, we see really good benefit uh, with them. So alpha-adrenergic plus 5-alpha reductase, good for our patients that are moderate to severe symptoms. Usually patients that are mild symptoms, one, one drug usually does a good benefit. I mentioned before, tamsulosin plus tadalafil showed superior symptom control than a single agent alone. And I don't think we talked about it yet. We, it's probably worth commenting, and I'm going to wander there next. When we've got patients just with bladder symptoms, right? So you've got a bladder that's just not draining those storage symptoms. The anti-muscarinics, the beta-3s plus the alpha blockers are superior to just the monotherapy alone. So let me back up real quick, and we're going to touch base on that. So the beta-3 adrenergic agonists, those stimulate the detrusor receptors to promote relaxation of that bladder, right? We don't get that. I'm walking around, I'm doing my thing, and all of a sudden I have to pee now. And if I am not in the bathroom in the next 10 seconds, it's, it's everywhere. I'm going to be in problems, yeah. right? And this can, this can create a lot of anxieties for patients where they are just constantly next to a bathroom. They're not going to go on road trips anymore, that kind of thing. Mirabegron and uh, Vibegron are the two medicines that are probably the cleanest as far as side effects go. But as you relax a bladder, the big problem is you relax it too much and you get urinary retention. So that's the side effect that you're going to watch for. Also, we've used anticholinergics. They tend to be cheaper. They're not uh, kind of branded as much. They tend to have uh, more side effects. So like oxybutynin is one of those examples. There's a bunch of them. But those can also be used uh, for it. They tend to have more side effects like dry mouth, constipation, dyspepsia, blurred vision, urinary retention. But for a patient that is buying their meds out of pocket, can't afford uh, some of the newer agents, they can also be a great alternative as well. Mm-hmm. But if your bladder symptoms, usually this plus something to help that bladder drain out better is going to work better than a single agent alone. Herbal medicine. A few of my patients over the years have told me they have tried saw palmetto to help with their BPH symptoms. Is there much literature or evidence supporting this use? Saw palmetto came out. The first few studies looked really, really promising. We're all excited because you're like, everybody likes it when it doesn't come from a pharmaceutical company. For some reason, we we value that more. It's a multi-billion dollar industry around it. So early studies looked really good on reducing nocturnuria and r- improving flow rates. So when we combined them, 2012, Cochrane got a bunch of studies together, combined them, didn't show a benefit, right? And so sometimes when a Cochrane doesn't show a benefit, it's because we took a lot of different styled studies and put them together. We're too heterogeneous in what we combined. 
And sometimes it's because there's no benefit. So do I have patients that come in and it takes all palmetto and they're like, I love it. It works great for me. Yes, I do have that. And I'm like, I don't know that I've got a harm that's there that you need to stop taking it. I don't tend to prescribe it as a first line, but if patients are using it and they feel like it's getting them a benefit, then I'm like, great, have at it, right? You, if it's even placebo, you're, you're not waking up five times a night. And that's what we really wanted at the end of this. Yeah, exactly. We want them to feel better. Referral. Now, we've all had patients that we've tried lifestyle changes, multiple medications, but their symptoms just don't improve significantly. And these are often patients that will refer along. Could you talk a little bit about what options a surgeon might offer? So let's talk about what some of the therapies are. I think everyone should be familiar with the transurethral resection of the prostate. And there is as many ways to do this as there are urologists, right? Like you can go in there, you can do it with a knife, you can do it with uh, vaporization, you can do it with a laser, you can do it robot-assisted, you can do it with microwave therapy. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. And that's been the mainstay of treatment forever and ever, right? Like if we just put a bigger straw in the orange or cut out a bigger straw, it's going to drain better. So certainly that's still there. There's a couple new therapies that are out there around steaming the prostate where they put water vapor into that which doesn't sound awesome. There's a newer one that's on the market that's kind of a fun one to think about. So it's a minimally invasive. They do it in the office. So have you ever put in a drywall screw, right? Like or one of those clamps that you hang something heavy on a drywall? Yeah. So there's a surgery that's essentially that, right? So what they do is the prostate's really big, right? We got a bunch of this pulpy orange stuff in between. Maybe if we put a brace on the inside of the urethra, and a brace on the outside of the prostate, and then we connect them with a suture, we squeeze them all together, we can pull this prostate open. So when they go in and they do this, they do three or four of those around, right, to open up the prostate. So they had tried for years and years to do things like stents. The stents were a disaster. They caused stones to form. They fell out, right? They just didn't work at all. So you don't see stents on any of these lists. But the nice thing about these is these little braces they put on each side they tend to get a good squamous layer over the top of them. And so it didn't cause any of these reactions that we were getting from the stents when they left them in. So this looks like it's going to probably be where the next steps are going. Patients tolerate it really well. It's an outpatient procedure. can often be done in the office. doesn't need full sedation. And patients get really good benefit from it. And it's kind of an ingenious, right? Like we just squeeze that prostate. It's just a little too big. We just put something in there to, to pull that open. That could do a nice job for us. Oh, anything else on treatment, Justin? I mean, there's a couple other things. There's, there's people looking at like artery embolizations, prosthetic artery embolizations that just, you decrease blood flow to it. There's some people looking at doing some deep incisions around the prostate that shift kind of where it goes. But I think the TERP is, as far as I can tell, is where a lot of people still live. And then there's some things to come uh, with it. But I think that really wraps up what we can do for this. And one comment, let me, I like going and listening to people who maybe disagree with me so I can learn more and see what's there. In talking with a couple of urologists around this, they, as the people who do the surgery, so I'd say there's probably their, their bias, but as the, the people that do that, it looks like there's probably evidence that scarring in the bladder and developing a, a dead bladder or bladder that's not squeezing well, that only seems to be prevented with surgery. It doesn't seem like the medicines prevent that. The medicines are really good for symptom control, but that prevention of that bladder going on and getting bad that way looks like it's limited with the surgery. That's uh, in, in people I've talked to, I, I don't have, again, 
here's the paper that showed that that's the definitive uh, benefit. But I think that's something for us to, to know is out there and, and to think about as we're, we're talking with patients. So do not exclude surgery as an option, particularly as an option to help prevent those dreaded long-term consequences. We're going to wrap things up here. But before we do so, do you have anything you'd like to leave with us? Anything we didn't ask you about that you wanted to tell us? You know, I think we've covered a lot of uh, really great things. I think whenever I'm in this, I would say just maybe going back and foot stomping. If you've got a patient that a physical exam's warranted, don't be afraid and just do the physical exam. Don't overthink it. Right. Right. Like <laughs> it will help you. Don't be afraid to do the exams that you need. If you feel like you need an extra lab to clarify that this isn't a urinary infection, go ahead and get it. We've talked about maybe some novel uses of the prostate-specific antigen and when those might be appropriate to use. Again, not everybody should have that done. And then maybe expanded our ideas of what are some of the options that are available for us out there. Well, this has been a most helpful review. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing what you've learned as you've done the deep dive to help uh, your practice and your patients. Thanks for having me, Heidi. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and I'm back with another rural medicine case. This time it's not one of my cases from the far north, but it's a bit of a different situation. I get, it was far away, far up in the air, actually, this occurred. And to tell this story, I am joined by Dr. Aisha Khatib. Aisha, welcome to Rural Medicine MRAP, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much, Vanessa, for having me on MRAP. My name is Aisha Khatib, and I'm an assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. And I've specialized in family and emergency medicine in the past, as well as a current specialization in travel and tropical medicine. So I'm the clinical director of travel medicine at MedCan here in Toronto currently. Travel medicine is the key word here, and traveling isn't stuff that we've been able to do a lot of in the last few years with the COVID pandemic. But you did have a trip that you took recently, a few months ago now, and um, I believe some interesting things happened on that trip. So why don't you set the scene? Where were you going? And uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, so this was in December of 2021. And I was on my way to Uganda from Toronto to be part of a tropical medicine course. So I was heading from Doha to Uganda. This was the third flight and it was about three in the morning. I was about to get nestled in for a much needed nap and they announced if there was a doctor or medical personnel on board. I'm assuming you stood up and headed up to see the flight attendant? Yeah, so the flight attendant was nearby and so I introduced myself. I told her I was trained in family and emergency medicine and how could I be of assistance? She directed me to the rear section of the economy seats and I saw a crowd of people and the first thing that came to my mind was, oh dear, someone's had a heart attack because I couldn't see what was happening. And this was a packed plane and it was dark, so I really couldn't really see what was going on. So as I walked over quickly, uh, trying to really think about, okay, where am I going to manage CPR if I have to? And thinking of all the COVID precautions and where I would, you know, try to figure out what would be the best location to do this. I walked up to the scene, I see this woman 
lying there with her head towards the aisle and her feet towards the window and a baby was coming out. Ah. <laughs> so not, <laughs> not a case that needed CPR, hopefully, but a baby on its way. This woman was delivering a baby and there was a crowd around her and they all looked quite shocked and no one was really doing anything. And so I introduced myself. I said, I'm the doctor. Somebody threw me a pair of gloves. And the first thing I did as this baby was already coming out was grab onto this baby as it was kind of making its exit. So that's how I was introduced to <laughs> this situation. I had no, no background at all, no history on the mom. It was quite an exciting time, <laughs> a nerve wracking time as well. So how long between the time you sort of got to where the patient was sitting to when the baby came out? What time elapsed? Oh, I mean, it was all pretty quick. As I saw what was happening, I put the gloves on and was, you know, right in there and trying to see if anyone was leading the situation, really. So probably a few seconds until I realized that there was nobody leading the situation. And, and at that point, I said, OK, I guess I'm it. So the first thing that just started going through my mind was, what do I need here? What do I have available to me? And how am I going to do this? So, you know, as I'm holding this baby as it's, as it's kind of sliding out, I kind of propped it on the seat. There was an airplane blanket there and, and baby was, you know, crying. I'm assessing its APGARs, you know, and, and kind of trying to clean it down, rub it down with the blanket. And at that point, someone taps me on the left shoulder and says, I'm a nurse, but I'm an oncology nurse. And I said, I don't care what kind of nurse you are. Get me the medical kit. I need the medical kit. And at that point, I just started thinking out loud. I said, OK, I need clamps. I need scissors. If I don't have clamps, I need shoelaces. I need hot water. And then I'm thinking, no, I, I don't need hot water. But they always ask for hot water in the movies. So I'm thinking, okay, what else do I need? I don't need hot water. And I said, I need blankets. And I'm just trying to think, okay, what do I need to kind of um, do? I haven't delivered a baby in, in over 10 years. As that's happening, you know, introducing myself to mom, trying to get a little bit of information to make sure she's okay, not in pain. She was pretty calm and stoic. I think she was more in shock. They basically pull out the medical kit and I said, look for a delivery kit. There should be a delivery kit on there. You know, I've done some research and work on air travel and COVID, and I've worked with some of the airline doctors from Air Canada and Air Transat before, so I know, you know, what's typically in these kits. And luckily, there was a delivery kit. So it had some clamps, some scissors, and it had little plastic clamps. And surprisingly, it had oxytocin. Really? Yes. And at that <laughs> point, like I breathe in a sigh of relief because in my mind, I'm thinking all the things that could go wrong right now. I'm thinking, oh, this woman could bleed. This baby could stop breathing. You know, all these things are happening and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to do this. So I have that. And as I'm opening this up, somebody taps me on my right shoulder and says, hi, I'm a pediatrician with MSF. And I'm thinking, this is amazing. We have an entire team. <laughs> it's like, great. We get the, the kit open and I'm able to clamp the cord with some the two Kellys that were in there. And I, with the assistance of the pediatrician, I cut the cord, had a good look over at baby and got some more airline blankets, cleaned the baby up, wrapped it up and passed her onto the pediatrician. I said, please check the heart rate, check her over, make sure she's okay. I need to still deliver the placenta. 
at this point, I had no history about the mom, no medical history. You know, all these things are going through my mind. I know she's from Uganda. You know, is she anemic? Is she sickle cell? Like, she seemed okay at this point. There wasn't a lot of bleeding and she wasn't a lot of discomfort. So I said, okay, let's take this really slowly. So I said, okay, I need blankets. But I was like, okay, how do I do this? I said, well, where am I going to put the placenta? So I was like, I need a plastic bag. <laughs> and you know, it's really good. I think I was just thinking out loud and to myself really. But as I was doing this, people were just handing me things, which was amazing because I had no idea who was around me. I wasn't really paying much attention because I was so focused on what needed to be done. So I waited and did some just gentle kind of cord traction until I felt the placenta kind of ready to give and was then able to deliver the placenta. And then you can imagine the first thing going through my head is I do not want this woman to bleed. So I gave that woman a uterine massage like <laughs> no other. And I wanted to really <laughs> bring that uterus down so that it was rock hard. So I massaged her uterus as that placenta was coming out until I felt it was not going to bleed. <laughs> and then I, you know, had a really good look at the placenta to make sure there wasn't anything missing and to make sure it looked okay before I put it in the bag because we still had five hours left of this flight. At that point, I was like, if she bleeds, I don't really have many options. I didn't give the oxytocin. And I think, you know, in hindsight, I should have. I think one of the worries I had was about postpartum hemorrhage. But at that point in time, she seemed stable. She didn't have a lot of bleeding. I had checked to make sure there weren't any obvious tears or anything like that. And I felt pretty comfortable with, you know, her uterus that had kind of shrunk down. But I kept it in, in the sense that we had five hours left of this flight. And if she did start to bleed, I felt like then it would be something that I could use in that situation. However, kind of in hindsight, I think if I had given it, it probably would have reduced her risk of postpartum hemorrhage, given, you know, like to kind of go back and looking at the evidence and, and whatnot around it. But I think one of the things is that, you know, the last time I delivered a baby was in residency. And during those times, even when we're delivering the babies, we never administer the oxytocin. It's usually a standing order that's given by the nurses or it's done automatically once the baby's delivered. So it's not something we I've ever physically administered. That was one of the things that I would probably have done differently is given to her. I am at that point when I had it instead of just kind of held it and waited just to make sure that she didn't have any issues following. I think that's a really good point, though, because when you're in a resource strapped environment where you definitely have limited resources, you are your brain is sort of trying to triage. When do I need this? When am I going to give this? And if you've only got one vial of something and you know that it can be used in the case of a real disaster, even if it might prevent that disaster happening, you're kind of like, I have no other fallbacks here. I have nothing mm -hmm. else. I don't have blood on this plane. So I can see how your mind would go there, too. And I'm sure I'd have done the same thing. It's great that you had it. That must have been an enormous relief. <laughs> Absolutely. And so once the placenta was out and, you know, the mom, she seemed okay. And I had a good look. Everything looked okay. She was stable. The pediatrician brought the baby back. Then I said, okay, mom's okay. Baby's okay. So I, I said, congratulations. It's a girl. And at that point, the entire plane erupted in clapping and cheering. And at that point, I realized, oh, right, I'm on a plane. <laughs> I mean, I had completely 
forgotten, you know, the, the context of the situation because I was just so absorbed in what was happening. There was a doctor on Medlink um, that one of the air stewards had on the, on the phone and brought the phone over and said, look, you know, you've got five hours left of the flight. Did you want to divert? Did you want to land? Or do you think you're okay to keep going? And I said, well, mom seems stable. We had ability to do vitals. And I said, let's get her up into a space where we can monitor her and baby. We've got some skilled medical professional on board in the case that something does start to deteriorate. And at that point, we can always reassess. So we kind of wrapped mom up in blankets and brought her up to business class and we changed her out. I, I put on a pad for her and we basically got baby on to skin and skin and got her latched and breastfeeding right away, which I also knew would help, you know, promote, stimulate some endogenous oxytocin so that if there was any, you know, risk of postpartum, that maybe also might help decrease the risk of that. And then I watched her like a hawk <laughs> for the next five hours. You know, we did vitals every 30 minutes. I checked her pad every 30 minutes. A postpartum hemorrhage is defined as really 500 mils to 1,000 mils of blood loss following delivery and or a 15% change in, in vitals. So blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen. So this was something I was monitoring with the idea that, okay, a full pad like a very full pad is probably equivalent to about 250 mils of blood loss. About maybe two or three hours into the flight, she did have a bit of mild cramping. At that point, I checked the pad again to make sure how much blood she had lost. She had a little bit, but it was not to the point where I felt like she was losing a lot. So I gave her some Tylenol and that was kind of the only other intervention that we had during the rest of the flight. And luckily, she did well and, and baby did well. And there wasn't any major complication after that. That's an amazing story. And I really think it's interesting how if you hear about, you know, someone delivering a baby on the plane, I think a lot of people would think about the laboring process for the mom and the doctor being there. And, you know, what would you do and how stressful that would be? But you arrived right at the moment of a delivery, essentially. And then you had all of those medical complications to, to deal with, you know, potential medical complications, I should say. It was interesting because I ended up getting her history and everything after the fact, right? So she was a migrant worker coming back from Saudi Arabia. She had had zero prenatal care. She was 25 years old and she didn't even know how far along she was. So she was about 35 weeks is what she told me. And for her, you know, she had come from Riyadh to Doha. She had landed in the Doha airport. She was connecting to Uganda where she was from. About an hour into her transit, that's when her water broke. And she didn't really understand or maybe process what that meant. She boarded that plane then at 2 a.m. Yet an hour into the flight, what happened was she started complaining of abdominal pain. The air steward noted, she said, are you pregnant? And that's when it kind of dawned on her. She's like, I think the baby's coming. If I were in your shoes, I think I would have been glad not to have known any of that history before. Just be like, okay, I found that out after when the baby was good, <laughs> mom is good. <laughs> it's like, because that is an extra layer of stress. But then at least you did still have five hours of monitoring here, which would have certainly been nerve wracking. You know, I was, I was very thankful that, you know, things went well. You know, in the end, it was, it was quite lovely because mom actually decided to name the baby after me. She named her Miracle Aisha. 
and I had a little necklace with my name in Arabic written on it. So I gave it to her because she was now my namesake. So quite amazing actually to think that she was delivered while flying over the Nile. Looking back from the sort of medical perspective, is there anything, you mentioned the oxytocin, were there any other sort of clinical pearls that you had? I love the shoestring idea. If you don't have a delivery kit in the medical kit, that's a great thought, the shoestrings. Any other thoughts? You know, after this whole situation that happened, it's amazing to hear actually how many people have been on a medical emergency in flight on board in regards to our colleagues. You know, I was looking at the stats and there's probably about 130 per million passenger prevalence of having an onboard medical emergency or about one in every 604 flights. So that's quite significant. And out of that, you know, delivery is more rare. So it's about one in 26 million passengers. But you can imagine there's anywhere between three to four and a half billion passengers per year, four and a half billion before pandemic, and about, about 42 million flights a year. So the chances of, of something like this happening are, are pretty high. So I think one of the things is to understand that there, all the planes will have a medical kit. So if you're in a situation like this, always ask for the medical kit to see kind of what your resources are in that regard. Most of the air stewards will have some medical training or at least some direction. And again, there's always going to be the option of having a MedLink doctor or a doctor over a phone that can also guide you. For example, if I needed to administer the oxytocin and I didn't know how much or whatnot, somebody on the ground could guide you in regards to giving doses. So know that you are not necessarily alone in these situations. You have resources that you can use. And often there's some, maybe some base instructions as well in the medical kit. So I think that's worth considering. And the other thing is, is yes, being resourceful is if you don't have what you would need, what other things could you use in that situation? But yeah, hot water is not one of them. It's amazing, actually. It was like 13 years of medical training and only, only movie scenes come back. <laughs> your head. I know it's funny. The instinct is still hot water, but luckily on airplanes, there are lots of blankets, at least on long overnight flights. So that's good. Blankets were covered. I'm glad about that. And I think there's always going to be the opportunity to assess your vitals, right? So sticking with your basics, uh, you know, going with your instinct and sticking with your basics. If you don't know what to do, start with the basics, start with your vitals, start with where they're at. And if you're in doubt, reach out for help or if you feel like this is going to be, an, you know, an emergency situation where you can't handle it or don't feel comfortable to handle it, then yes, then there is the opportunity to divert or land to get urgent medical care. I really liked your idea of saying out loud your thought process. You know, we talk about that in code situations where it's like, let the team members hear what you're thinking in a situation where you have potentially 400 team members who are <laughs> probably listening to what you're saying crowdsource a little bit sometimes, maybe some resources, someone might say they have an idea or something. So I think that's a great plan. And I'm so glad that everything went well. And that uh, despite having to stare at her like a hawk for five hours, that <laughs> everyone landed successfully, and that you have a beautiful baby girl namesake in Uganda. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing the story. And uh, if you have any other tales, uh, please do let us know. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vanessa. Primary Care Medical Abstracts with Ken and Steve.
Well, it is great to be back for another summer edition of PCMA. Oh, the days are long and wonderful. This is the August 2022 episode. I'm Ken Mill, and joining me as always, Steve Brown. How are you doing, Steve? So happy to be here. Hey, you know what? I know you don't have any news or updates for this episode, but it is nice. We're getting emails and we're getting questions on various things that we've covered. So please keep sending in your questions, comments, feedback. We actually do listen to them and respond. Yeah, you can comment right on the webpage for PCMA. You can comment in there and then Ken and I respond when you send in a comment. What a novel concept. Actually, feedback. (laughs) Fancy that. The future is now. We take all respectful criticism also. Yeah, and it's actually nice because, you know, then we can clarify certain things or we might get a number wrong or reversed or something like that. So, hey, that's why we have an audience. Let's crowdsource this and make it the best product possible. Ready to go on the top 10 here? Yes. Okay, I've got number one. Paper one. So abstract number one is percutaneous coronary intervention with drug-eluting stents versus coronary artery bypass grafting in left main coronary artery disease, an individual patient data meta-analysis from The Lancet 2021. And I thought this was a really good article to use as a basis for discussing angioplasty versus cabbage when a patient comes to see and says, hey, you know, you know, I got identified as having this coronary artery disease and they're talking about doing a PCI or a cabbage. What do you think? And even though we're not the ones doing the cabbage or doing the angioplasty, our patients do want our input and interpret the data for them. So The objective of this study was to evaluate the long-term outcomes for patients, and this is important, with left main coronary artery disease, and they were looking at PCI with drug-eluting stents versus a cabbage or a bypass. So they searched the English language and a few databases. It didn't look like they looked for the gray literature, and they included patients with that left main coronary artery disease and compared how do they do with PCI compared to a cabbage. Now, their primary endpoint was a five-year all-cause mortality, and then they had a number of secondary endpoints like, hey, how many people died of cardiovascular disease, or how many people had a spontaneous MI, or did they have a procedural MI, so while you were doing the PCI or cabbage, did they actually infarct? And then how about repeat revascularization? So those were the secondary outcomes. They found four RCTs that met their criteria, and they had almost 4,400 patients. The five-year all-cause mortality was not statistically different. There, boom, did it. 11% versus 10%, uh, you know, it wasn't statistically different. The hazard ratio was 1.1 with the 95% confidence interval spanning 1.0, so that line of no difference. Now, when you looked at the secondary outcomes, you had less spontaneous MIs with a cabbage but more procedural MIs when you underwent a cabbage. And then any MI was more common with PCI, but if you had a cabbage, you had less revascularizations. So those are the results. Now, despite some of the limitations with language restrictions and a lack of gray literature search, this systematic review and meta-analysis has a significant advantage of using individual patient data. So that's a high quality sort of metric when you're able to use individual patient data 
rather than comparing the whole data set, you can look at individual patients. But like most things in medicine, when it comes to the question, the answer is, it all depends. There was no statistical difference in all-cause mortality with either strategy. However, some of the secondary outcomes, if true, could influence a patient's choice of whether they wanted to do PCI versus cabbage. So an excellent opportunity for a little shared decision-making. Yeah, I, th- I thought one of the things that I often hear when, like the, when you talk about it depends, like what are the factors, you hear cardiologists talking about what's the lesion like and how complex is it? And so I didn't actually know there was a score for coronary complexity. It's called the syntax score and 32 or less is low to intermediate complexity. And so these patients were mostly without high complexity, so low or intermediate. And what you'll hear the cardiologist say is they'll say the anatomy. The anatomy makes it so we want to do a cabbage on this patient. The higher the complexity, the more beneficial cabbage is. And although this study was not powered to determine it, there was an indication that cabbage was better in patients with high complexity. So you can't necessarily take that to the bank, but that might be a factor in the cardiologist's decision and how you talk about it with the patient. And ultimately, that decision is going to be made between the cardiologist, the interventional cardiologist, and the patient. But we're all part of the team, and so I think we bring something to the table and can have that conversation with patients. And we need to know the literature so we can have the informed conversation with the patients so they can make an informed decision. Bottom line. There does not appear to be an all-cause mortality difference between treating patients with left main coronary artery disease with either PCI or cabbage. Paper two. Okay, abstract number two, mortality and morbidity in mild primary hyperparathyroidism. This is results from a 10-year randomized controlled trial of parathyroidectomy versus observation. It's in Annals of Internal Medicine, April 2022. I'm sorry there's going to be some pathophysiology on this broadcast, Ken. Thanks for the trigger warning. They said there would be no pathophysiology. (laughs) Exactly. So remember that your parathyroids control your calcium levels. And so if you have a patient with a mildly elevated calcium, you're going to want to figure out, well, is that because their parathyroids are a little bit overactive? But we don't know the long-term effects of mild primary hyperparathyroidism. And that's often caused by a single gland adenoma. And guidelines recommend parathyroidectomy in most patients, especially those who are symptomatic. So these authors sought to answer the question of the impact of parathyroidectomy versus observation in a narrow subset of patients with mild hyperparathyroidism. The primary endpoint was mortality and other morbidities were secondary endpoints. It was 191 patients were included from referrals from eight Scandinavian centers, and this is the report of the 10-year follow-up. To be included, you'd have to correct the calcium, you know, more pathophysiology, correct the calcium for the albumin, and it had to be between 10.42 and 11.22 milligrams per deciliter, and they had to be age 50 to 80. They had several exclusion criteria, including history of kidney stones in the past five years, elevated creatinine, underlying serious medical condition. And they don't say how many patients with hypercalcemia they had to screen to enroll these patients in this trial. 
The patients were randomized to surgery or observation, and patients in the observation group were scheduled for surgery if they developed some complications or their calcium went above 12.02 milligrams per deciliter on two occasions. And 17 of the 96 patients in the observation group ended up having surgery, but they were analyzed by intention to treat, so the group they were originally assigned to. So what were the results? At 10 years of follow-up, 15 patients died, eight in the surgery group and seven in the observation group, no difference. During the extended observation period, so that's even after 10 years, 44 people died, but they were evenly divided between the two groups. There was no difference in cardiovascular events, cerebrovascular events, cancer, peripheral fractures, vertebral fractures, and renal stones. About a quarter of the patients dropped out in each group, so that might have an effect on the validity. So I think it was nice to have this data when discussing mild primary hyperparathyroidism, and most cases are of the mild variety. This watch and wait or observation seems like a reasonable approach because there's not high quality evidence to suggest that surgery is superior. So I just looked at this paper as another example of don't just do something, stand there. Absolutely. Yeah. There's an editorial that comes along with it that many of these patients often don't progress if you have low levels of hypercalcemia. And many patients elect watchful waiting even before this trial. They did say that if your patient does have surgery, they should go to a high volume center. So a place that does a lot of these parathyroidectomies. If your patient elects to not have surgery, monitor calcium levels and fracture risk. And if the patient doesn't develop complications like kidney stones or multiple kidney stones, then it's appropriate to actively surveil. Bottom line. Patients with mild primary hyperparathyroidism may consider the observation option instead of surgery. Paper three. Abstract number three. Risk of first ischemic stroke and use of anti-dopaminergic antiemetics. Nationwide case time control study in the BMJ 2022. There have been large observational studies that have suggested antidopaminergic antipsychotics are associated with ischemic stroke, especially at the start of treatment. And so the objective of this study was to estimate the risk of ischemic stroke associated with antidopaminergic antiemetics. So not antipsychotics, the antiemetics are ADA, antidopaminergic antiemetic use. So ADAs are peripheral D2 receptor antagonists. So they work in the periphery, and they have a direct effect on chemoreceptor trigger zones. Now, these receptors are located outside the blood-brain barrier. However, some of the drugs like metoclopramide is an ADA that does cross the blood-brain barrier. So what they did was a case-time-controlled study and they got the data out of a national healthcare database in France. The cases were adults defined as anyone 18 years of age and older who had a first ischemic stroke and who had at least one reimbursement for an ADA in the preceding couple of months. So they looked back 70 days. They also looked at three different time periods to two weeks before the stroke happened. Now, they compared that to a control group of patients who had also been diagnosed with a stroke 
and they matched them to age, sex, and risk factors of ischemic stroke, but who did not receive reimbursement for an ADA. And what they found was the odds ratio was greater. It was 3.12, and this was statistically significant. And then they stratified patients by age, sex, history of dementia, all this other type of stuff, and they found that the odds ratio was higher if you received reimbursement for one of these drugs. Now, they broke it down by the different types, and it looked like metapimazide had the highest at 3.62. They did a sensitivity analysis, and that sensitivity analysis, when they dug into the data, suggested that the greatest risk was in the first few days of use. So this case time control study adds additional information to inform our understanding of the association between ADA use and the risk of ischemic stroke. However, I want to caution people, it would be an over-interpretation of this observational data to conclude causation. We also don't know if the person who was reimbursed for this medicine took it. And we don't know if they took it when they took it. Did they take it right away when they got the prescription? Or did they take it later? Another limitation is that metapimazine can be purchased over-the-counter in France, and that could contaminate the results and make it a bit fuzzier. So this data... I think, should be considered in context of the potential benefits to this drug and the potential harms of this drug and compare them to the potential benefits and potential harms of other drugs that are being used to treat nausea. And I want to say, especially in the elderly, using things like antihistamines like dimenhydrinate, I think it's called Dramamine in the U.S., or using 5-HT3 antagonists like Ondansetron. What are the potential benefits and potential harms of the alternatives? Because we know that some of these could make these older patients a little weaker and potentially increase their falls risk. Is Domperidone off the market in Canada also? No, we have Domperidone. Okay, it's been off the market in the U.S. since 2004 because of fatal cardiac arrhythmias. And then metoclopramide also can cause tardive dyskinesia. So I don't know if there's any of these that you see people using regularly. We use metoclopramide all the time, actually, in practice. Okay, so I guess people don't feel like the evidence on the other things for metoclopramide is that compelling. But And I agree with you, this doesn't prove causality. But this category of drugs has shown to have quite a few problems. So I'm not sure I really want to risk it. Yeah. And can you imagine saying, well, we can use this medication for your nausea, but you might have a stroke. <laughs> right. Exactly. That, you know, <laughs> it may dissuade a few. Bottom line. The use of antidopaminergic antiemetics are associated with an increased risk of ischemic stroke greatest risk in the first few days, and this should be considered when treating patients with nausea and vomiting. Paper four. Abstract number four. Let's talk about some great ways to improve your care of opiate use disorder patients by integrating harm reduction. This is from Journal of General Internal Medicine from December 2021. So our best practices for management of opiate use disorder should include screening, using a validated screening tool, 
using motivational interviewing to develop a therapeutic partnership with your patient, to assess social determinants of health, what are the factors in this patient's drug issues, engaging community resources, using proven medication therapies, which we've talked about a lot on this program, and then also employing harm reduction strategy. And so this article summarizes harm reduction strategies to improve morbidity and mortality for your patients with opiate use disorder. Harm reduction, the definition, I'll just quote them because I think it's pretty useful. It, quote, reduce the negative effects of health behaviors without necessarily extinguishing the problematic health behaviors completely or permanently and offers an alternative to abstinence as a singular goal, unquote. So that's what harm reduction is. So what does that mean? And these authors outline it really well in this This is not a systematic review. It's a sort of expert opinion review, but lots of really good evidence mixed in. So harm reduction strategies include to provide intranasal naloxone to your patients, counsel on other overdose prevention strategies like using non-IV routes, suggesting your patient take test shots if it's like a new batch or something that they don't know how strong it is to test for fentanyl if they don't want to be taking fentanyl. That's a huge part of the problem in the U.S. now is the the drug supply is heavily contaminated with fentanyl. And then also use with other people who are prepared to help in overdose situations, certainly who know how to use the naloxone. Other really important harm reduction strategies, offer treatment on demand with medications. Take a patient-centered approach to medication therapy, including options like high-dose buprenorphine, or micro-dosing induction. If you're stuck with just one way of providing buprenorphine, it might not work the best for your patient. Try to reduce stigma during the office visits. That should apply to your whole office. And then you're going to prevent and treat infections by offering comprehensive testing and treatment, including for HIV and hepatitis C. Provide condoms, provide safe ejection equipment, provide other harm reduction supplies. Don't use urine tests punitively, but more as a tool to assess patient stability. It's a tool, Ken. A tool, not a rule. Exactly. And then integrate reproductive health into your conversations with your patients. So there's some good evidence mixed in this review article, and I think it really can help us understand how to better care for our patients with opiate use disorder, not just focusing on abstinence, but how can you help make the patient healthier overall? So Steve, you really highlighted some of the points that I wanted to make. And I think that the gold, Jerry, the gold, I tell you. That's gold, Jerry, gold. Was in table one. And table one just goes through and summarizes a lot of what you said in a bullet point fashion. And so if you wanna just pull this paper, grab table one or a screenshot of table one, it was really, really good. There were a couple of other points that I wanted to bring out that I hadn't thought of before. And one was that to prevent overdoses, where are people injecting and make that a safer center? And, you know, I know, you know, the whole idea of clean needles and having some people around you that can respond with naloxone. But what about, you know, doing injections in these public bathrooms that have locks on the inside of the bathroom? Huh. If somebody overdoses, how are you going to get in? I hadn't thought of that. Or the whole idea of having reverse motion detectors in high-risk areas. You know, you walk into an area, 
And we've got this whole society now based on cameras. And all of a sudden, you know, some motion happens and the camera picks up and starts recording. They talk about reverse motion detector where, yeah, we know you're in there, you know, the motion detector went off, but now there's been no motion for a period of time. Then the camera kicks in again. I thought, oh, technology being used in a way I hadn't thought of it. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in that table one that goes through stuff like that, that I found very interesting. Yes, definitely good practical advice to help our patients. Bottom line. Incorporate harm reduction into your management of patients with opiate use disorder. Paper five. Abstract number five, proton pump inhibitors and risk of gastric cancer population-based cohort study in gut 2022. Now, this is the first paper this month to look at PPIs. We have a guideline later in the episode, but we do have two papers on PPI this month. So this first paper, the objective of the study was to determine whether new use of a proton pump inhibitor or PPI, those patients, are they at risk for gastric cancer? And so it was a population-based cohort study from the UK using a big database that they have there. And what they looked at was the exposure to a first prescription for a PPI. And they compared that exposure to a first prescription for a histamine 2 receptor antagonist. The outcome of interest that they were looking for was the diagnosis of gastric cancer to see if there was an increased risk and association. The median follow-up time for these patients was five years. Now, this is a popular drug, as you know, Steve. They found <laughs> one million new PPIs. That's new, di- that's new prescriptions, not ongoing. That's like they're adding a million new ones. Now, in comparison to the H2 receptors, there was only 200,000, so a fifth as many prescriptions. Now, when they looked at this, they presented the data, you know, the summary statistic was presented as a hazard ratio. So the PPI was associated with an increase or a hazard ratio of 1.45. And that 95% confidence interval was all on the side of hazard for getting gastric cancer. And they compared that to the people that got a prescription for an H2 blocker. So if you do the calculations, though, the number needed to harm, i.e. have a new diagnosis of gastric cancer, in five years, was over 2,100. Yes, you heard me correctly. Now, for 10 years, that number was 1,100. So 1,191. Wow. So this data, you know, depending on how you spin it, could be used in a very alarming way. You know, this primary outcome of a hazard ratio, I understand, you know, yeah, we present things as a hazard ratio. But they say in the manuscript, that means it's a 45% increase in gastric cancers compared to H2 blockers. Whoa, can you imagine telling a patient, you know, and how that could be incorrectly perceived that if I use this drug for five years, I have basically a 50-50 chance of getting cancer? That's not how that (laughs) should be interpreted. You know, it's not an absolute number. It's not a absolute increase. And it's not a delta between, oh, there was you know, 10% in H2 blockers and 55% in the PPI. So that delta was 45%. No. And this is the problem of small numbers and using ratios. The absolute difference is 
tiny. It's it's, it's little, little. Now I'm not trying to minimize gastric cancer, but we've got to put it in perspective here too. It was 0.047%. So I generally, when talking to patients, prefer using absolute numbers rather than these relative numbers or these ratios and stuff, because you can see how alarming that could be if you reported this and said, hey, you know, uh, yeah, we're going to start this medicine, but just be aware that there's a, you know, a hazard, hazard, right? You're using the word hazard, you know, 45% chance that you'll get gastric cancer. No, that's not how this should be relayed. And as a final thing, just as per the Choosing Wisely Canada recommendation, most patients on chronic PPI therapy, and if you're using it for five years, I'm considering that chronic, for gastrointestinal symptoms, should try stopping the medication at least once a year to see if it's still doing what you think it's doing. Yeah, kudos to the authors for including the number needed to harm, which I know 2,000 and 1,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but if it's gastric cancer, I think that's substantial. And I know that you know they tried to measure the confounders and there may be unknown confounders. You don't know if these people were just sicker and that's why they are older and that's why they got a PPI. We, so one of the things that I, that I do sometimes and when we're preparing these is I look back and what we've talked about before on these topics, and we have like 20 abstracts in the database related to the harms of PPIs. And the recent one was in 2018, you talked about this, Ken, that observational studies show an increase in chronic kidney disease, acute kidney disease, interstitial nephritis, hypomagnesemia. C. diff and osteoporotic fractures. And we'll actually talk about this later. And the gastroenterologists in the guideline have a whole like script of how you can explain this to your patient. And, and they do think that like this residual confounding makes it so these drugs, while it sounds alarming, may actually be sort of safer than all the horrible observational studies make it seem like. Yeah. And I think we need to have a reasonable conversation with patients. And it's a chronic medication. And so if you're using something chronically, are you still getting the potential benefit? And you need to balance that against the potential harms. And and it's not just about PPIs, but you know that I'm a PPI pauser, right? You know that I like to take these holidays. Yeah, I do. Yes. Bottom line. There is a tiny but non-zero association between prolonged PPI use and gastric cancer. Clinicians should prescribe the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration. And patients should be encouraged to take a PPI holiday at least once a year. Paper six. Abstract number six. We're not shying away from controversy in this issue at all. (laughs) So this is the five-year outcomes of a melanoma screening initiative in a large healthcare center. This is from JAMA Dermatology, April 2022. You hear all the time, my patient, they need a skin check, or this person needs skin check, or the patient comes in and asks for a skin check. And you all probably know that the USPSDF states that current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of visual skin examination by a clinician to screen for skin cancer in adults. Really important to notice this is different from a patient coming in saying, I have this thing that I'm worried about. Will you please look at it? That is not screening. The USPSTF does, however, recommend that we counsel 
young adults, adolescents, children, and parents of young children about minimizing exposure to UV radiation in kids, in people six months to 24 years with fair skin types. So that's a B recommendation to counsel people with fair skin to wear sunscreen. And these authors point out appropriately that population-based skin cancer screening is currently not recommended because of lack of data to quantify the balance of benefits and harms. And unfortunately, this study does not really answer that question, but sort of, I think, highlights some of the reasons why you might want to be cautious. So they performed an observational study based on their quality improvement initiative for patients over 35 who presented to a primary care visit over a four-year period. They, the authors trained primary care doctors to identify melanomas and encourage them to offer screening exams to patients. So this was like, hey, we're going to really do this well in our practice. They compared melanomas diagnosed in screened and unscreened patients. They screened about 24% of their 600,000 patients at least once. So 144,000 patients were screened. The results, screened patients were a little bit older. There were 944 melanomas diagnosed in the study period. And Patients were diagnosed with any melanoma, 0.14% of patients in the unscreened group, and 0.25% of patients in the screen group. So more people screened found melanomas. However, almost all the melanomas they found were either in situ, which is just in the dermis only, or just one or two millimeters thick. Melanomas greater than four millimeters in depth, which are the more worrisome ones, there was no difference in the two groups, 3.3 per 100,000 or 2.7 per 100,000. Those are teeny tiny numbers, 3.3 per 100,000. Unsurprisingly, the incidence was higher for everything in patients over 65 They had no patient-oriented outcomes here, so nothing was measured, including morbidity, cost, mortality. And the authors brought this up themselves, that screening widely can lead to overdiagnosis, which I'll read the quote here because I thought they defined that really well. Overdiagnosis is, quote, the detection of indolent lesions that would not have progressed to fatal melanoma prior to being detected by routine care. So maybe you find the melanoma later, and maybe that doesn't matter. This is not a randomized controlled trial, so there may have been difference in patients in the screen versus unscreened groups, and maybe four years is not long enough to detect a clinically important difference. Yeah, um, I'm I'm getting less and less enthusiastic about all these QI projects. Sure, they're interesting. Okay, can we do better if we focus our attention and say, hey, we're going to take melanoma more seriously this time or at this stage? You know, and then what about some other initiative that's going to come along? What's the long-term, you know, sort of sustainability for all these QI projects? And I think it really feeds into the fundamental problem of a strong publication bias, because you're going to want to find something, you know, positive to say so you can get published. I mean, who's going to do a quality improvement project and go, yeah, we found nothing or it made everything worse. Please publish. You know, that (laughs) I can see that the likelihood in that is not very high. So I don't know. I'm I'm just, I'm not as enthusiastic on these QI projects as maybe I was when I was starting my career. Yeah. And because it really doesn't help us know if skin cancer screening is beneficial. 
it's really interesting if you if you look at the USPSTF review on this, you would have to do there, so. There's a lot of false positives also. In addition to overdiagnosis, you have to do 20 to 40 excisions to detect a melanoma, and that's and that doesn't tell you anything about how serious the melanoma is. And so there are harms, and those have to be balanced before we should proceed further with universal screening. Yeah, absolutely. It. it I mean. <sighs> You know, there's this whole, this is getting very meta though. There's this big desire that we need to publish and we're in an academic institution and to climb the academic ladder, you know, our little check marks and our little, the currency is publications. That's one of the main currencies and stuff like that. But I really do think we need less research and better research and conducting studies that if, you know, this is a good question, you know, to have, like, does screening work? But this doesn't answer it. This doesn't answer the question. So... Right, totally. You heard it here first from Dr. Ken Milne. We need less research. <laughs> Bottom line. This observational study shows likely overdiagnosis of small melanoma lesions with universal screening. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. The relative efficacy of seven skeletal muscle relaxants an analysis of data from randomized studies. And this was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2022. Spoiler alert, another paper reporting on how hard it is to effectively treat low back pain. I mean, (laughs) you mentioned how many papers we have in the database about PPIs. There must be more about treating low back pain. So the objective of this study was to look at four RCTs that were conducted sequentially in the same clinical setting. And they compared seven different smooth muscle relaxants to placebo to see if the efficacy was associated with the patient's age, sex, baseline low back pain-related functional impairment, or a history of low back pain. So included in these four RCTs, the patients were aged 18 to 69 years of age, and they all had received an NSAID. Seven of the smooth muscle relaxants were compared, and they were compared all to placebo. The primary outcome was an improvement in the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire. And this is a standard questionnaire that's used to assess these issues. And they looked at what it was at ED discharge, and compared it to one-week follow-up with a five-point improvement on this RMDQ score being considered clinically significant. So the magnitude had to be at least a five-point change. So what did they find in these four randomized control trials looking at seven muscle relaxants? Well, there was a 10-point drop with all smooth muscle relaxants. So that sounds good. Woo-hoo! Because, yeah, it's greater than five. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot to tell you. The placebo also dropped by 10 points. <laughs> oh, darn. Don't. So there was no statistical difference between all the different muscle relaxants and compared to a placebo. And when they sliced and diced it regarding age and sex and baseline severity, the results were similar. Now, if you started with a higher baseline disability on this questionnaire, then you did see a greater drop in the treatment effect. 
Now, adverse medications, because we can't just consider efficacy. And if you wanted to spin this, you know, a 10-point drop, it was just as good as placebo. But the adverse effects of these medications were more common with uh, cyclobenzaprine than placebo. All right, so those are the results. I have to tell you, Steve, it's, I am really, really fighting not to be nihilistic about the treatment of low back pain. I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard. Yeah, but there's just, there's just such a lack of high-quality evidence that pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic therapies provide much relief to these patients. The study reports on adding smooth muscle relaxants to an NSAID, and it reports no advantage over handing the patient a placebo. Now, I, I think it is important to note they didn't include patients over the age of 69, and this patient population is generally at greater risk for adverse events from some of these medications which have sedative side effects, you know, so you can just see, well, you know, your, your back pain isn't any better than if we'd given you a placebo, but you fell and broke your hip. So now your hip hurts more than your back, or you broke your wrist and you've got a Collie's fracture, or even worse, they fell and hit their head. And you know, most of these patients are on Doax now. Yeah. The, I think the non-nihilistic way to look at this is, <laughs> so the RMDQ, which is this disability score is a 24 point scale. And Basically, if you tell the patient, I'm going to give you an NSAID, I'm going to see you back in a week. And on average, you're going to basically, your disability is going to be cut in half. You're going to have 10, you know, better on a 24 point scale. So basically, if you give an NSAID and watchful waiting, most of these patients are going to be substantially better in a week. So that's great. So I don't know why we would even consider adding in cyclobenzaprine and diazepam that have all these side effects. And yet I see this all the time, like that constantly, that, that intervention bias. Well, they're still in pain. And I think that gets to the point of we've got to set expectations that you hurt yourself. So that means you will have pain. I would like to minimize the suffering that you have. And I would like to ensure that you can perform functionally and your activities of daily living. But to get down to zero on this scale or zero on a pain scale is just a little unrealistic and the potential for harm increases. And so I really think focusing on expectations and when you said, hey, we give people an NSAID and see you back in a week, we know that the data on NSAID use isn't that great. So what we might be just seeing <laughs> is something called the natural history of disease. Bottom line. We cannot recommend smooth muscle relaxants for the treatment of low back pain in patients. Paper eight. Abstract number eight, the utilization and costs of grade D USPSTF services in Medicare 2007 to 2016 Journal of General Internal Medicine, December, 2021. We've talked about low back pain a lot. We've talked about PPIs a lot. We have talked a lot about low value care on, on PCMA. We know that low-value care is expensive and often harmful, and the USPSTF categorizes these recommendations as D, don't do, but we can all think of examples where you see these routinely done in practice. And so the authors sought to estimate utilization and costs of seven USPSTF grade D services in U.S. Medicare patients using a national Medicare survey. 
There were 20 grade D services when they did the study, but they, seven of them had data which could actually be searched. And those seven were screening for bacteria in asymptomatic patients, vitamin D supplementation for fracture prevention, prostate cancer screening for men over age 75, cervical cancer screening for women over age 65, COPD screening, screening low-risk adults for cardiovascular disease with an EKG or a stress test, and colon cancer screening over age 85. So those were the seven grade D recommendations that they looked at. They did a cross-sectional study of data from the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey. They found 95,000 visits were found in the database, and that represented 2.4 billion visits. So the results, 7.9% of the visits included a utilization of a grade D service. That is mind-blowing. One in 12 visits in Medicare patients. And annually, these seven grade D services were used 31 million times and cost half a billion dollars, $477 million. And two-thirds of that cost was from three services, asymptomatic bacteria, vitamin D supplementation, and colorectal cancering screening for adults over 85 years. So lots of millions and billions being wasted here. Wow, that's depressing. Yeah, that's a half a B to do all these Ds, right? Half a billion (laughs) for the don't do that, don't be doing that. It's a D grade recommendation. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. And it really opens the door for us to talk about doing the right care. And I know that often when we're talking about these things, we're talking about doing less, but sometimes we need more care. But if we need more care in certain areas, we need to be able to fund and support those areas. And that takes resources. And if we're blowing billions of dollars on low value care, that money, those resources, that time, those office visits, right? One in 12 office visits, those visits could be reinvested to, I don't know, I'm just going to go out here on a limb and and sort of give a little spoiler alert to uh, abstract number 10, maybe invest those on the social determinants of health or other high value care and get more return on our investment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you should stop doing this, but how do you change people's practice patterns? Don't pay them. Don't pay them. Money, yeah, exactly. don't pay them. You know, you, <laughs> problem or, 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 or find them, you know, you order another vitamin D level. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, these are not controversial. There's plenty of things that we do in medicine that are like, oh, I don't know. Is this good or is this bad? These are clearly not indicated. It's a no brainer. Sure. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, yeah, you know, I think uh, how you motivate physicians is with dollars and that's one stick. You can either, well, you could use it as a carrot or a stick. But, you know, if you don't pay them for the service, they tend to not do those services anymore, or you penalize them for doing those services, or you have some kind of regulatory thing that goes on with that. So I think that uh, it's going to take, you know, Medicare and these system approaches to say, if we've got a half a billion or multi-billion dollar program, we're going to need to have a system approach to try to address it. Yeah. And there, and you mentioned, you know, we, there's some things that we need to do more of and some things we need to do less of. And there's, a, there's an institute 
in the US called the Lown Institute that talks about right care. So that's what we need is we need the right care targeted at the right patients and not to be doing all this wasteful testing and, and interventions. Bottom line. Services given a grade D recommendation are frequently used in the United States at great cost to our system. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. This is the ACG clinical guidelines. Guideline review. For the diagnosis and management of gastroesophageal reflux disease, published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology last year in 2021. I did say that we are going to have two papers on PPIs this month. And so this is the second paper that really looks at PPIs. And we are trying to do a guideline at least uh, every once in a while to summarize for the PCMA audience. The group formed some PICO questions around this issue of the diagnosis and management of gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD. They were great. They got a research librarian to use a search. And I, I think research librarians are fantastic. They use grade criteria to evaluate the evidence. They I'm going to list only the recommendations because they had just too many to go through. But I'm going to talk about the recommendations that had at least moderate quality evidence and made a strong recommendation. Not included in this list that I'm going to go through is the extra esophageal GERD recommendations or the surgical and endoscopy options because we're really not doing that in the primary care, talking about the surgical or endoscopy options, just to minimize the list down to eight recommendations. So remember, these have at least moderate quality evidence and strong recommendations. The first one is that if you have a patient with classic GERD symptoms of heartburn and regurgitation and they don't have any of the alarm symptoms, just give them a couple of months trial or eight-week trial of empiric PPI once daily before meals. That's the first recommendation. I like recommendation two because it gets to lifestyle. It says, hey, you know, weight loss in an overweight or obese patient for improving their GERD symptoms. Great. The third recommendation was treating with a PPI over treatment with an H2 blocker for healing erosive esophagitis. And the follow-up on that is for the maintenance therapy of a healing erosive esophagitis using a PPI over an H2 receptor antagonist. The fifth recommendation, and this, was, this is a good one, take it a half an hour to an hour before a meal rather than having people take their PPI at bedtime for their GERD symptoms. The sixth thing was maintenance PPI therapy indefinitely or anti-reflux surgery for patients with Los Angeles grade, so LA grade C or D reflux. Seventh, and this was the only one that had a do not recommend. So they do not recommend baclofen in the absence of objective evidence of GERD. And then the eighth one contained in this whole guideline that it had at least moderate quality evidence and that they made a strong recommendation for was the optimization of PPI therapy as the first step in the management of refractory GERD. So now some comments on this guideline. You know, they didn't follow the Institute of Medicine guidelines for writing guidelines. So I have to tell you, if they come at me and say, hey, Ken, get with the guidelines, I'm going to say, which ones? Oh, you're talking about your guidelines? Well, how come I have to get along with your guidelines, but you don't have to follow the guidelines that are for guideline writers? And specifically, they had several declared financial conflicts of interest 
which could potentially bias their interpretation of the data. There was also a paucity of high-quality evidence. Only one in the entire document had high-quality evidence to inform their recommendation. Most recommendations were based on low-quality evidence, so I didn't even go through them. They did address the long-term safety of PPI, like you said, and they had this big, long sort of script in there. I'll just read the one sentence out of it. And that is, quote, gastroenterologists generally agree that the well-established benefits of PPI far outweigh their theoretical risks, end of quote. And I would come back with the Choose Wisely Canada recommendation again, and they recommend not, not to maintain long-term PPI therapy for GI symptoms without stopping at least once per year in most patients. I had the same take as you. There were lots of strong recommendations in here based on low-level evidence. So thanks for picking out the at least moderate risk. And that statement about sort of like, you should read this to your, they said, you should use this exact script. And they list literally 20 adverse conditions, which we've talked about on here. And they say they do not establish a cause and effect relationship. But you're, you're going to be like, hey, I know your stomach hurts a little, but here's a list of 20 things. But we don't really think that those things are, uh, you know, too much to worry about. So I don't know if that helps shared decision making. But I I think if there's any take home from this whole episode, it's use PPIs for eight weeks, trial off, be a PPI pauser. And I think that the the gastroenterology guideline supports that also. Also, did you catch, they talked about non-erosive reflux disease, which the the abbreviation for that is NERD. So I thought you might like that. (laughs) Nerd, nerd alert. When I was reading their quote, you know, all all of a sudden in the back of my head, I had this parody like from Saturday Night Live of a a drug ad, you know, saying, you know, start living, stop suffering. And then this may cause you to burp, fart, break out in a rash, get cancer, die in a car accident. You know, this whole like speedy talk with all these terrible things and then comes back to this wonderful, but you want to stop suffering and start living. Exactly. We suggest you take this drug, you know? So I I just, anyways, that's just my brain, of course. (laughs) That's not what they said (laughs) in the quote. Uh, It's just, that's what my brain jumped to. Bottom line. Not much has changed in the diagnosis and management of GERD, with PPIs being the mainstay of therapy. But don't forget to take a PPI pause each year. Paper 10. Abstract number 10, Social Risk Interventions and Healthcare Utilization for Pediatric Asthma, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from JAMA Pediatrics, February 2022. Social determinants of health are these upstream community conditions that affect people's quality of life and health outcomes and really shape the world in which people live, learn, work, and play. And so these social determinants based on historical inequities in the U.S. impact different people to a different degree. And we know that social determinants of health are important in all our patients, but especially in pediatric health. And so this study looked at individual interventions for asthma while acknowledging that we still need to advocate for policies that address 
social determinants of health at a community level. So just because we're addressing a health factor in one individual patient, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be advocating to improve our communities for everybody. And so it's unclear if individual interventions addressing social risk can improve asthma outcomes. So these authors did a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess if social interventions on an individual basis could improve asthma-related emergency department visits and hospitalizations. They reviewed a whole bunch of search methodologies and the references of all text articles for from a 13-year period, 2008 to 2021. The included articles were U.S.-based studies evaluating associations of interventions addressing one or more social risk. They found 38 articles for the systematic review and 19 for the meta-analysis. They used the Healthy People 2020 framework to group studies according to the social risk they addressed. And there were five clusters, health and healthcare, social and community context, neighborhood and the built environment, economic stability, and education. These are important things that determine the health of our communities. So the results were that all interventions addressed one or more of the health, environment, and community domains. There were no interventions focused on the economy, economic stability, or education domains. They did assess them for study quality, and they met the minimum quality standards in four of six domains. All of them did. And most studies were a weaker study design, like a before or after intervention. There were quite a few also randomized group designs. Overall, the meta-analysis social risk interventions did decrease ED visits with a relative risk of 0.68 and hospitalizations with a relative risk of 0.5. So you can cut hospitalizations in half with these social risk interventions. The heterogeneity was quite high. The I squared for those two results were 69 and 70%. The clusters that produced the lowest relative risk were health, environment, and community interventions for ED visits and for hospitalizations. So to try to like wrap my brain around this, I looked at some examples of the health interventions back at the primary studies. So a health intervention example would be like home visits, telemedicine-based school visits, a lot of them were education sessions. So like, let's go to the person's home and teach them about how to avoid, you know, asthma exacerbation factors. There were also the fewer studies on the environment interventions, which is like they would remediate the environment based on allergen results of a kid. And there were lots of the studies that involved multiple of those five domains that were overlapping. So overall, I felt like there was enough here to continue to do individual level interventions to improve outcome in patient populations where there's social determinants of health causing inequalities. But but really, we're not going to make a huge difference until we advocate to eliminate all those disparities in our communities. So, Steve, these were U.S.-based studies, and they were very specific and explicit about that. They were looking at the U.S., only. Yeah. And we have listeners from from around the world. And so some of those listeners work in more socialized countries with more socialized healthcare systems. So it's unclear if addressing social determinants of health in Sweden would really impact in those environments. 
it would be great if we had some high quality evidence demonstrating that addressing these things upstream before people fell off the cliff and had an asthma exacerbation, or I guess it would be fall over the waterfall if we're using a stream. So it went over the waterfall and, and ended up in the pool down below if there was an effective strategy. But looking at this, my pretest probability is that these interventions could be effective. And so my answer would be yes, based on the comparison of morbidity and mortality data for the U.S. compared to other developed nations. I mean, if we have a society that has, you know, access to clean drinking water, access to clean air, access to good jobs, good education, good housing, all of these things that create a healthy community, you have less disease and illness and you have longer lifespan, lower infant mortality rate, and I'm going to just say it, happier societies. Yeah, our department right now is reading a really great book by Dan Heath called Upstream. And it talks about how most problems are solved um, in all areas, not only in public health, more at the edge of the waterfall, trying to save people from dropping in, and that we need to go upstream. And this is obviously very familiar to us in primary care. And so the frustration really comes from how do we do investment upstream that people call a cost? Oh, I'm going to start this new program, you know, so... So kids can have early childhood education, which would definitely improve health. Oh, but that costs something. No, it's an investment. So how do we, how do we really our society, our society in the U.S., certainly probably many others too, but most other countries have done better than this at the U.S. is how do we look upstream to see how we can solve problems to keep all of us healthier rather than just sitting there at the, you know, the edge of the waterfall trying to pluck people off with limited success. Bottom line. Interventions to address social determinants can decrease emergency department visits and hospitalizations in kids with asthma. Well, there you go. That was the August 2022 edition of PCMA. I don't think we're going to have to do a September one because we solved all the health problems yeah. in the world today. I mean, done. What, what else is there to do? I already advocated for less research. So we've advocated for less research. We don't have to do <laughs> any more research. So we'll have nothing else to cover because we're going to take care of people upstream. It's been nice working with you, Steve. <laughs> yes, that was great. Thanks, everybody. Maybe we'll talk to you next month. Yeah, yeah, we had a good run. We had a good run, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to go out here on a limb and say, I think we're going to be back in September, everyone, because there's st this is a very complex, and even when we're joking around and giggling and stuff, healthcare and society and the way we organize our society is a very difficult and complex problem. And, and so we will be back in September. sum this all up. Summary. All right, we are back with the summary. And yes, we are still talking to each other, apparently. <laughs> I'm here against my will. <laughs> Let's start with PCMA. PCMA, Article 1. Paper 1 is in Lancet 2021, the December issue, and is called Percutaneous Coronary Intervention with Drug-Eluting Stents versus coronary artery bypass grafting in left main coronary artery disease, an individual patient data meta-analysis. 
So I've often wondered this, Vanessa. Does it make a difference if my patient has a cabbage or a PCI? So I was excited to see this study. I mean, it's obviously on a very specific population, but at least it partially answers my question. So this study looked at people who had left main coronary artery disease and found that there was no difference in five-year mortality between having PCI versus a cabbage. You know, if the left main lesion is very complex, there appeared to be a slight edge to the cabbage, but this is probably not something we're going to be dealing with in primary care. Paper two. So mortality and morbidity in mild primary hyperparathyroidism results from a 10-year prospective randomized controlled trial of parathyroidectomy versus observation in the Annals of Internal Medicine 2022. Ah, the parathyroids. They look so benign and insignificant when you see them in anatomy class. And then you see the patients who are post-op from thyroid surgery and all heck is breaking loose because they lost a parathyroid gland in there somewhere. And uh, now everything is going bananas in terms of their metabolism. So basically, I think what I'm getting at is that the parathyroids scare me. But this paper looked to see whether having mild primary hyperparathyroidism is something that we need to be scared of and if we should cut out the gland or if we can just do some good old watchful waiting turns out there was no difference in significant outcomes, regardless of whether you were watched or whether you went under the knife. So it's nice to know that keeping an eye on calcium levels and fracture risk doesn't seem to cause harm in those mild primary hyperparathyroids. Paper 3, Risk of Ischemic Stroke and Use of Antidopaminergic Antiemetics, Nationwide Case Time Control Study in the BMJ in March of 2022. This is another fascinating paper. Stephen Ken are full of great papers this month. And it's interesting that these meds, the antidopaminergic antiemetics, are associated with an increased risk of stroke based on this study, especially in the first few days of use. Of course, the big caveat is that some of these meds can be purchased over the counter in France where the study was done. So we're not really collecting all the information about the people who take these medications, but uh, still important to consider. Of note, the two most risky meds are metoclopramide and metopimazine. I don't think I'm going to change my practice at this point yet for these medications, but I'll definitely be more cautious in using them in people who have multiple cerebrovascular disease risk factors. And I'll look forward to more studies on this topic. Paper number four, integrating harm reduction into outpatient opioid use disorder treatment settings, harm reduction in outpatient addiction treatment in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, 2021. So the treatments of patients with opiate use disorders definitely requires a multi-pronged approach and should include harm reduction in addition to screening, motivational interviewing, and of course, understanding the social determinants of health. Some aspects of harm control could include encouraging patients to avoid IV administration whenever possible, getting them to use small test doses when starting a new batch, and to only use when other people are around them in case someone needs to give a dose of naloxone. The study also talked about some novel ideas for further harm reduction, such as reverse motion detection cameras in public areas where people might be using, in addition to creating safe injection spaces in general. Thinking outside of the box for the betterment of our patients. I like it. Okay, paper five from the journal Gut. Love that journal. So simple. Their January 2022 edition. And the title is Proton Pump Inhibitors and Risk of Gastric Cancer, a Population-Based Cohort Study. So this study used the UK Clinical Practice Research data link to do their research, and they found a teeny tiny increase in the risk of gastric cancer in people who were started on a PPI and then followed for a median of five years compared to people who got an H2 blocker. 
Okay, so you get started on a PPI, somebody else gets started on an H2 blocker for whatever symptoms, and you, theoretically, have a small, higher risk of getting gastric cancer than them. But how small is this risk? Well, it's almost negligible. It's 0.047%. And this study left me with the question is like, why would a PPI cause gastric cancer? If anything, I associate PPI with a decreased risk of GI cancers, especially esophageal cancer. But apparently, Vanessa, PPIs can cause hypergastronemia, which then in turn causes hyperplasia. So who knew? It's a biologically plausible mechanism. While the risk is small, it's definitely another reason not to keep our patients on these medications longer than needed. Paper 6, Five-Year Outcomes of a Melanoma Screening Initiative in a Large Healthcare System from JAMA Dermatology, April 2022. This observational study of a whole whack of family medicine patients over the age of 35 looked at whether screening helps pick up more cases of melanoma. Not surprisingly, in the screened patients, there were more cases identified, but a lot of these were likely representative of overdiagnosis. So the jury is still out as to whether we should be doing these large-scale screening programs for melanoma. Paper 7 from the Journal of Emergency Medicine, April 2022. The title is The Relative Efficacy of 7 skeletal muscle relaxants, an analysis of data from randomized studies. Here's the bottom line. If I've learned anything from listening to PCMA for the last couple of years, nothing works for back pain. Nothing. Not the drugs in the study, not the drugs in any of the other studies Stephen Ken have looked at. That's it. Next. Sounds good. Paper 8. <laughs> the Utilization and Costs of Grade D USPSTF Services in Medicare 2007 to 2016 from the Journal of General Internal Medicine, 2021. This study looked at the actual use of seven services deemed by the USPSTF to be of low value. For example, screening for certain cancers after a certain age, looking for asymptomatic bacteriuria in adults, screening for COPD, and even vitamin D supplementation for fracture prevention. And it turns out that despite getting a D grade from the USPSTF, one in 12 Medicare visits involved the patient getting one of those seven services. Annually, just those seven services alone were used 31 million times, costing the system half a billion dollars. And that was just for those seven services that we were looking at in this study. So please try to ditch those practices and save the system some money and save the patients from harms. Paper 9, guideline alert. This is the American College of Gastroenterology Clinical Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease. It came out in January 2022. And all I can say is you've got to love a guideline that doesn't follow the guidelines for guideline writing. This is one of those. That being said, let's look at this pseudo-guideline, so-called guideline, and take what they say with a grain of salt. But there are a couple of pearls. The first one is... For patients with classic GERD symptoms, so this is heartburn and regurgitation, in the absence of alarm symptoms, we should be doing an eight-week trial of empiric PPIs once daily before a meal, okay? Another one that was interesting is that maintenance PPI therapy should be used indefinitely in a patient with grade C or grade D reflux, or they should have anti-reflux surgery. And just a quick side note, Ken has mentioned multiple times that we should be stopping PPIs from time to time to make sure the patient still needs it. And I just wanted to have a quick reminder that people can get wicked rebound symptoms if these meds are stopped suddenly. So tapering is best. 
Okay, paper 10, Social Risk Interventions and Healthcare Utilization for Pediatric Asthma, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from JAMA Pediatrics 2022. In this paper, the authors were looking to see if individualized interventions addressing certain social determinants of health had an impact on asthma-related health outcomes in kids. They found that the individualized approach decreased visits to the emergency room and hospitalizations, which supports the idea of continuing these interventions for sure, and perhaps more importantly, implementing them on a societal scale. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. On the rest of the show, Hobie joined me to talk about handover. And this is something we want to get right because patient care depends on us remembering to tell whoever's taking over from us all the pertinent things about their care. And also, collegiality depends on us not leaving our colleague in the lurch. So Hobie and I compared how our different shops do it, and we took a look at the literature. And what was really interesting here is that a lot of papers recommended a structured handover tool like the SBAR or the IPASS, but you know what? There is not satisfying data showing that they actually result in better care. So I would say do what works for your team and your patients. The Generalist. And then in The Generalist, Jake and Adrian tackled upper GI bleeds and gave us some great pearls. Remember to risk stratify the patient using the Glasgow Blatchford score and follow a restrictive transfusion threshold of 7 grams per deciliter. If you suspect a non-variceal source of bleeding, then PPIs are your friend here. But if there are varices, then go with somatostatin analog therapy like octreotide. Oh, and try to get them a scope as soon as possible. Benign prostatic hyperplasia. And for our next segment, Justin Bailey and you chatted about benign prostatic hyperplasia. Remember, not hypertrophy, hyperplasia. Justin runs us through the evaluation, potential complications, and management of this. And this was a great overview of a really common condition. So go back and listen again. Minor burns. On our urgent care segment, Britt Guest and Mel tackled the topic of minor burns. They reviewed how to classify the burn and when to send the patients to an ER. They also gave a great approach to how to care for the burn, but the key points are don't drain any blisters. Also, treat the pain and do not prescribe antibiotics automatically at the first visit. And if you're transferring your patient to a higher level of care, don't worry about putting on a fancy dressing or anything like that because that bandage is just going to be ripped off. A clean sheet to protect the wound. And away they go. That's all you need. Rural Medicine Talks. And on Rural Med, I chatted with Dr. Aisha Khatib, who luckily for the patients in this story is both a travel medicine and emergency medicine physician. I say they were lucky because in this case, the patient was a young pregnant woman who delivered a baby on a flight. Aisha had to manage the fourth stage of labor, as well as coordinating care of the newborn, and she had some great suggestions on what to do if you are ever in a similar situation. Ask for help, ask for the medical kit that's always carried on the plane, and crowdsource supplies and ideas when needed. And for those of you who are paying attention, yes, we've talked about how to deliver a baby on an airplane and on a helicopter so far. Stay tuned for when we cover another mode of transportation. Bicycles. Baby delivery on your left. That wraps stuff up for this month, Vanessa. If anyone's educational needs are not yet sated, please check out the other offerings here at MRAP. We have 
EMA, our EM literature review program. We have HD videos of procedures that you need to know. And if you want to brush up on your ortho, check out our ortho fundamentals video series. And of course, don't forget our emergency medicine textbook, which now has its own app. So get out there and try it out and give us some feedback and let us know what you think about it. So many resources out there in the MRAP universe because, of course, you do so much. So until next month, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. <laughs>